And, and maybe there's some like psychological part of that that's like, I am projecting that I can play. Yes. Like, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm not trying to suck right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is episode 12 with my buddy, my pal, and guitarist to the stars, Mr. Scott Patton. Welcome to Fader Jocks. My name is Brian Stevens, freelance musician and recording studio professional. Each episode, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you grow and develop as an audio engineer, music producer, or recording musician. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Now let's push up those faders. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 12 of the Fader Jocks podcast. I'm Brian Stevens. And I'm starting 2022 by bringing out the big guns, big guns. I've got quite an amazing guest for you this week. And if this is the first time that you've listened to the podcast, there's a bunch of cool episodes that came before this. Uh, You usually know that I talk for a few minutes, catch up on what I've been doing. We'll usually talk about a topic. We're not going to do that today because today's podcast is a marathon of amazing, amazing content for about two and a half hours. That's after the editing. Uh, We've got about two and a half hours worth of content with my guest today, and it's jam-packed with all kinds of amazing, amazing stuff. Before we get to the interview, I did want to touch on one thing that I want you to know about. If you've been following me on uh, the social media, if you've been seeing what's been going on the last six or eight months, you know that uh, about the middle of last year, I started a Patreon that that has gone really, really well. Uh, we created a lot of cool content, especially audio engineering content, um, some drum samples, all kinds of cool stuff on the Patreon. Well, there's a lot more I wanted to do with the Patreon, so we've migrated it over to what I'm calling the Cosmic Clubhouse. If you go over to brianstevens.net, that's where my blog has been for a long time. Not only is the blog there, but now we've basically taken what was on Patreon and just blew it up into so much stuff. If you jump over there and get on a membership tier, you get all kinds of amazing, cool things that we couldn't do on Patreon. There's three different tiers that I'll just tell you about real quick. If you jump on the cool and casual tier, which is 10 bucks a month, it's a great way to support this podcast, the Dial a Drummer podcast, and all the other content that I'm putting out through YouTube and Facebook uh, and the blog. If you jump on that cool and casual $10 a month, you unlock all of the premium content on the porch, which is what used to be my blog. Now we're calling it the porch. It's got all kinds of great premium content. So if Sometimes you'll notice you'll click into one of those blog entries on a particular day. It may be a video. It may be a download. It may be many different kinds of things. And you may notice, oh, wait a second. I can't download that. I can't. So immediately when you grab yourself a membership to the Cosmic Clubhouse, you unlock all of the premium content that's on the porch. Right now, we're also in the middle of migrating all of my YouTube and Facebook videos to the Clubhouse ad Free. I've been creating content on the dang internet for 20 years at this point. We're slowly migrating all of that content 
into the clubhouse and making it completely ad-free for you. You get early bird access to all of the podcast episodes, and you also get bonus content from our guests, including this week's guest. We usually will tape an extra 20 to 30 minutes worth of content that doesn't really fit in the podcast. It's specifically for the Clubhouse members. You get that when you jump in on that $10 a month tier. You also get access to the members-only email list. There's a bunch of cool stuff that I share with you there. And you get discounts on shop merchandise. There's the second tier, which is run and gun. It's another level of engagement and and just all kinds of cool stuff that you can get. In addition to all the cool and casual features, you get access to a lot of premium courses that I'm currently putting together for the site and a downloads section. A few months ago, I came out with a drum sample package. We're in the middle of working on an amazing new drum loop package. That'll be out soon for our Run and Gun members. Uh, There's all kinds of other downloads that you'll be able to get in that download section, including presets. So presets for some of the plugins that I use for mixing and mastering. You get that kind of stuff. You get all kinds of cool tips and tricks. You also get access to the Drummer's Den and the Audio Bungalow. These are sections specifically designed for drummers and audio engineers. There's all kinds of cool content that we're putting in there every single week. And speaking of cool content every week, for my run and gun tier, we're doing weekly live streams and Q&A sessions. And if you miss one of the live streams or one of the live Q&A sessions, we always archive them so you can go back and, and look at them. You can go back and grab that information and really it's just a bunch of useful stuff, things I can't really do in a podcast or can't do on YouTube. We've got Discord server access, and pretty soon we're working on putting a members forum in where you can talk with each other. All the Clubhouse members can get together and talk about all things related to audio engineering, music production, drums and drumming, you name it. We'll be talking about it in the members forums. And if you want the highest level of engagement, there's the ride or die tier at 100 bucks a month. You get all the stuff that I've talked about already. You get some very special in-studio live streams. When we're recording stuff here at my studio, we're firing up the cameras and letting you sit in on these sessions if you're in the ride or die tier. You also get some special discounts and freebies from sponsoring manufacturers. You get one monthly Skype virtual lesson or coaching session with me, which normally that by itself for an hour lesson would be 75 bucks. It's included in your ride or die tier. And you also get a special birthday gift from me every single year if you're on that hundred dollar a month ride or die tier i've got people saying all the time brian we wish you'd put out more frequent podcast episodes and more youtube videos well this is how we can get it done if you can support this show support the youtube channel and support the dollar drummer podcast through your membership tier Cosmic Clubhouse leaves me a lot more time and energy and space to be able to create more content for you. That's why the Cosmic Clubhouse exists. Patreon was fun, but I couldn't do all this cool stuff. We can do it now in the Cosmic Clubhouse. You can go to brianstevens.net and check that out. In fact, if you're on any of those membership tiers, I've got something extra special for you. This week's guest, we've put the entire interview, almost three hours I think it is, completely unedited, 
start to finish, just like it happened in the room. Uh, that's available for you to listen to as one of the members of the clubhouse. And we've got a special 25-minute long bonus segment that we recorded specifically for Cosmic Clubhouse members. You'll get that at any tier of memberships. So please go to brianstevens.net, sign up for a membership tier today. I think you get the idea. I hope I've pitched it to you. It's a brand new thing. We soft launched it in January and in February. We've just been adding content to it. And uh, beginning in April, the live streams are kicking full bore. And we're adding all kinds of premium content week after week after week for you. In addition to the free stuff that you're already getting through the podcasts, through the YouTube channel, all that stuff. So, Without any further ado, let's talk about this week's guest. So this week's guest, I've gotten to know this guy so well over the last year. Over the last several years, we've had an opportunity to work together on a number of different recording projects. But within the past year, he and I have gotten a chance to work really closely together on the road and it has been a real joy and a real privilege to see this guy work and to get to play on stage with him. We've played for as few as 100 people and as many as like 5,000 people. It, 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 was, it was a great run last year that we had. So who is the guest? Today, to kick off our 2022 season for Fader Jocks, my special guest is my buddy, my pal, Scott Patton. Scott is... He's one of those top-shelf guitar players. We're not just talking Atlanta, Georgia top-shelf. We're talking about global top-shelf guitar players. He's one of the top three that I've ever played with in my entire life. Now, aside from playing with me... Uh, <laughs> currently, he's the musical director and lead guitarist for singer-songwriter and actress Jennifer Nettles. Scott produced and played guitar on her newest song, Sassy on Sunday, which was prominently featured in the HBO hit comedy, The Righteous Gemstones. If you haven't seen The Righteous Gemstones yet, you're in for a real treat. Just go to HBO, HBO Max, if you're on YouTube TV, however you get to HBO, just start watching The Righteous Gemstones. If you've already gone through all the seasons that are up so far, then you've heard Sassy on Sunday. In fact, you know what? I'm going to pause a second, and we're going to put in a clip of his guitar solo from Sassy on Sunday. Here we go. Right. We can do this on the podcast. There you go. Let's hear it. So that's the amazing work of my friend Scott Patton on uh, Sassy on Sunday by the, the incredible Jennifer Nettles as her character on the Righteous Gemstones television show. In addition to this stuff, since 2004, Scott's been the lead guitarist and band leader for the Grammy Award winning country sensation Sugarland, which 
if you're not paying attention, also includes Jennifer Nettles. Over the last two decades, he's also worked with some amazing people like John Bon Jovi, Lady Gaga, Beyonce, Butch Walker, too many people named here. We talk a little bit about that in the interview. And in this interview, we also get into Scott's history, his past as a part owner of the illustrious Exocet Studios that used to be here in Atlanta, Georgia, where he worked on a ton of great albums as a guitarist, uh, as an engineer, and as a producer. And if you dig what you're hearing in this interview, don't forget that we've got the complete unedited ad-free interview with Scott available now, along with a bonus 25-minute segment where we talk about all kinds of geeky stuff. We talk about amps and amp sims. We talk about uh, recording in the studio and and just so many different things in that 25 minutes. We really pack a lot of stuff into there. Uh, you can jump on a membership tier at brianstevens.net. Hear all that stuff. Next week, I'm putting up the complete video of my interview with uh, jazz drummer Carl Allen. Uh, that's something that's not going to be available anywhere, the video of that. That, uh, interview. There's just all kinds of stuff, but I digress. So let's get into this amazing talk. Two and a half hours. We talked for like over four hours, and that was uh, that was not counting the hour before we turned the mics on, and the like hour and a half that we talked at lunch afterwards. I got to spend the day with Scott, and it was amazing. Here's two and a half hours with my buddy, one of the greatest guitar players I have ever played with. Mr. Scott Patton. I, I might have a problem. I'll just, I'm going to say it on the front end of this, more for me, less for you, and partially for the one person that's listening to this. I'm going to have a problem in this interview. It's going to be a big problem, and we're going to find a way to get through it. Okay. Because... You and I know each other well enough. It's hard for me to get into as many people as I've interviewed over the last 20-something years for different things, magazines, podcasts, whatever. It's going to be very hard for me to get into interviewer mode. I'm going to want to be in cut-up mode the whole time. Okay. So if we just end up being in cut-up mode, that's kind of what happens. Yeah, you know, maybe that one person will like it. <laughs> <laughs> if we actually get some valuable, actionable, actionable information out out of this for yeah. people, um, I'll be pleasantly surprised, Good. and hopefully our one listener in Wisconsin will be uh, pleasantly surprised as well. Well-educated. All right. <laughs> so I will have told everybody who you are and what you've done and okay. all that kind of stuff, mm. at least the bullet points. Yeah, yeah. So we don't have to go all the way back to, so what is it that uh, got you started playing music? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to go a little forward in the timeline. This mm-hmm. is just for me because these are questions I don't have answered okay. that I'd like to know. Okay. Because we have run, I don't know if you realize it, but we've run parallel paths. Mm. Yours probably a little more successful mm. than mine, but parallel paths for a long time. Mm-hmm. How did you get to Atlanta? I came to Atlanta from L.A. That's the broad stroke. Okay. There is a little more detail to that, but essentially I went out to music school in Los Angeles and my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and and we've been together since high school, had wanted to move here to go to uh, art school. Yep. And so it was kind of her idea. 
Mm-hmm. And there was a guy named Steve Freeman who started MI. And you know Steve, right? Wow. See, I'm telling you, we have all these these people and these places and these things that we run just so close. Yeah, it's funny. And it, so Steve Freeman had yeah. started AIM. It wasn't called that. It was going to be another MI here in Atlanta. And G- MI's Musicians Institute, Guitar Institute of right. Technology was the department that I had gone to. And I had just gone to a shortened, um, I forget even what they call it. I don't think they have it anymore. They're, they're in a, uh, an accredited college now. They weren't when I was there. Right. So you could take, you know, a year course or a six-month course or whatever. So I had taken a smaller chunk of it and thought, kind of in my own mind, without talking to Steve or anything, like, I'm going to move to Atlanta and I'll work there. I'll, that'll be something I can do. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened that the apartment that we were looking at uh, was right next to where that very first building that he had, which was an old funeral home in Doraville. Oh, wow. And yeah, I don't know if you're ever there. And and, mm-hmm, I'm, yeah. and I came to know all these people later, but okay. I didn't know any of them at first. And I walked in there to kind of check it out. And Jimmy Herring and O'Teal were both teachers there. Wow. Yeah, and I mean, I again, I had no idea who any of these folks were, but um, you know, I w- went in and had some conversations. Quickly realized teaching's probably not really my bag, you know, and that led to, well, I'll just go to school. So I went to, I mean, I'm a kid, I'm 20 at this okay. point, you know. So uh, I went to an engineering school, which was part of the Art Institute of Atlanta. It was called the Music Business Institute. And they taught production and taught you how to use a console, and everything was tape back then, so it was all too much tape. And then that led to some interns. I worked out at this place called Reel to Reel in Stockbridge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Will Turpin. The Turpins from the Collective Soul. Bill and Will. Yep, exactly. In fact, those guys were out there when I was there. It was a thing called Marching Two Step, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's what Ed Rollins, uh, so it was that band. I think they were building all that, or, you know, making those records when I was there as an intern. And Bill was a sweet guy. He's gone now. But uh, he was good at recognizing people's abilities. And he very quickly said, you know, so I'll teach you all this stuff. That's that's not a problem. But meanwhile, let's let's make some money. And he ended up sticking me in this department. He'd kind of been building this thing where people would send in lyrics, usually terrible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for X amount of money, we'll make you a song. Yeah. And what that meant was you got me doing everything yeah yeah you know so i would just sit in there all you know he gave me a key to the place i can remember being soup and by the way stockbridge is nowhere near doraville you know? <laughs> not even close <laughs> yeah it's like it's like if you were looking at the hand uh, the face of a clock yeah one of them's around like two o'clock yeah and the other's like way down around like seven ish yeah. it or might so. as well be another state especially <laughs> when you're 20 uh basically broke and sharing, a, you know, a 1989 Honda Civic with your girlfriend. Yeah. And it's important at any given time that either of us have some way to get from point A to point B. So I made it infinitely more complicated by taking this gig, you know, basically in Alabama. Right. And uh, But, you know, what it afforded me was a key to the place and complete access. And so not only could I be part of sessions and work and actually make money, but also, uh, you know, I was functioning in this way of like building these songs for people, which mostly was, I don't even remember most of it. I feel like wasn't even in person. They would just send you something. They would, I don't know, bill it kind of organized it all. Yeah. This is pre email. Oh yeah. 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 This is like 91. Wow. 
Gee yeah, whiz. Somewhere okay. in there. Yeah, it was 2021. Yeah, so I would have been 20 and something like that. Anyhow, that is how it got started. And from there, I was I met some guys at this place called Exocet, mm-hmm. which was a blossoming studio. They started as just a, they were a live PA company originally. Hmm. And it was a mix a mix of people in there. There were people with live skills or people with, record, you know, studio skills. None of them were really musicians per se. My, my longtime business partner, Bruce, played some keyboards. He'd be the first to admit that he's not a keyboard player. But, you know, he did make a living at it at a time. So when there was a, there was a guy named Tom Jenkins who, um, if I'm rambling, I forgive me. No, 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 but, no. But uh, Tom, Tom is definitely a musician. But he, you know, he was he was in his own world there, and he was running a MIDI studio. So this is back in the day when you could have a MIDI studio that was completely separate. Racks and racks of just yep keyboard modules and yep. samplers and all that kind of stuff. Yep, all all you know, music related and not necessarily built around recording. And Tom, who is kind of a jack of all trades and a, a very accomplished musician and, and has a, a, an educated background, was a band instructor and plays all the woodwinds and all the brass and all the percussion and, you know, basically has a handle and all that stuff. He was doing a lot of stuff for theater and things like that and kind of had, it wasn't necessarily part of the studio, but it kind of was at times. We had a tape duplication room in there as well. So it was all integrated, but in a way, Tom just kind of had his own space. Looking back on it, Tom is a, he's, he's probably officially a hoarder and uh, he just hoards uh, valuable gear. Yeah. And he needed a place to put his valuable gear so that, you know, I think it was partly just an excuse to have that. Yeah. I was the only one there that, other than Tom, that knew how to even turn on a computer. And so at some point, Tom had taken a gig in Indonesia as a band instructor. I don't know if it's still this way, but back in the day, these tobacco companies would, they'd have a marching band. It was like a kind of an odd point of pride (laughs) that these companies would have. And and it turns out, it will probably turn out none of this is true, but this is what I was told. Okay. You know, who knows what Tom was actually doing in (laughs) Indonesia? But uh, from what covert I, CIA, ops. you never know. Yeah, you, I mean, especially with Tom, you would never know. But uh, I, I believe it made sense to me that he took this gig. It was sort of a point of pride for these companies if they could get an American band uh, uh, leader yeah. to come in and do this thing. So, and it was great for him because he spoke the language. He was into like gamelan and all the music of that culture. I think he had a couple of girlfriends over there. I think he still does. That's so, the, really the reason he. Yeah, it's yeah. all. That's always. It's always at the root. It's of always about Tom, a girl. Tom's reasons. <laughs> Probably most of us. But yeah. So um, so he was going to leave for like six months. I, he had some clients that he was doing some music work for, and it was just simply a matter of I was the only one that could even remotely accomplish something in that room. And so I took over his client list and by the end of that six months, I was, I was working. I was working full time and I I don't know at what point I I did graduate school, but I, at some point school became relatively unimportant in terms of what I did for a living and all that stuff. And it went from there to then kind of seeping into the audio side Mm -hmm. 
of that studio and just kind of slowly, you know, figuring out how to get good drum sounds and all the stuff that comes along with working a analog studio. Right. And at one time, Exocet was one of the places, if you were going to record, Exocet was one of the places in this town, Hmm. if you were going to make a legit, great sounding record. It was a great studio. And I can remember we we went to Winkler. I don't remember if you would know Winkler. They use Keller shells. I remember that. And he had a, a drum kit that was built specifically for that room. Wow. Now, you know, looking back on it, it's like you could do this anywhere. But at the time, it really kind of felt like this is special. We're really going the extra mile. You know, we really prided ourselves in good drum sounds. That was That was always the thing when I would go to other studios. That would be the stumbling block. Yeah. You could, it was difficult to get a good drum sound. It seems easier these days. I don't know if that's really true or not, or if we just all work with better people. But back in the day, it, especially if you had kind of, you know, someone who wasn't necessarily the greatest drummer in the world, it could be difficult to get a good kick and a snare. Yeah. So we worked really hard and, and invested in that place to try to make it part of what, what we offered. And at the end of the day, it became a, a big learning think tank of how to how to get from point A to point B while making records. You know, eventually, uh, I mean, making money in that industry is has always been difficult. Yeah. Um, but you know, by the end of that run, we had three large format console mm-hmm. studios running. We had a mastering studio that Glenn Schick. Yeah. Glenn was there, I remember. And, you know, Glenn was the first guy to break out and win Grammys, and and he did real well with all of it. We still had the MIDI room, which had kind of turned into like a Pro Tools room. This was sort of early Pro Tools, and uh, yeah, so it ended up being um, a life. You know, it was like a decade later I was there and and doing the thing. So that's that's that part of it. Where were you during that that era? I've lived on the fringe in this town i've always physically lived right outside the perimeter Mm. like my location has always been sort of how i've been a part of this whole scene in 99 when i started a studio up in duluth it felt like we were a world away from all the cool stuff that was happening inside the perimeter or just around the perimeter because tree is not too far from the perimeter Mm -hmm. but the the idea for me in putting a studio out there was it's an underserviced area people have to drive into the city to get a decent studio let's put one in duluth right and then we'll poach a lot of traffic from just people that don't want to make that trip all the time and you know i mean i was just playing gigs like playing gigs with with usually older players and i think that's that was one of the things for me getting into this town was I immediately locked in with people that were 10 and 15 years older than me because they were the guys that were doing uh, a lot of the the sessions. There were albums I was listening to. Before I even got to Atlanta, there were albums I was listening to where I knew the names. I knew that you know the, the Rick Hinkles and the Jody Warrells and Brian Cole, the drummer. Yeah. I knew all these much older people through these albums mm-hmm. And so when I got to this town, I already had a sort of a list of people like, these are people that I know of. Mm-hmm. Let's try and meet those guys. Yeah. And those were the guys that were doing a lot of, they were still, even in the mid-90s, were still doing a lot of the albums sure. that were getting done. They were doing a lot of the gigs, like the gigs that, that people would show up and see, you know, whether it was club gigs or, or um, you know, these outdoor gigs that there seems to be a whole pr- proliferation of now. There weren't nearly as many 
in the mid nineties, but those guys were doing those gigs. Yeah. And then a lot of the better wedding and corporate things like those guys were doing those gigs. So that those became my friends and my mentors. Mm -hmm. And so while I had people that were my age that were friends, they weren't people that I worked with. They weren't people I played with. Mm -hmm. um, they were just people that I hung out with. And so that's probably like why it took us so long to eventually get to know each other was we had a lot of the same friends, but it's not people that I was working with. Mm -hmm. It's people that I would go and have a drink with or something, or I, you know, go see a show with or something. And back then, between having the studio in Duluth, trying to make a career for myself so that I could pay for a kid and all the other things that go along with that, mm -hmm. um, there wasn't a ton of hang time. Yeah. But um, with Exocet, is, do you feel like that's really where you made a lot of the lasting connections that you still have today mm -hmm. is that where all of that really started for you almost every one of them yeah almost every one of them came out of doing records with people yeah. especially um more notably the ones that were successes you know yeah. i mean those are the ones that are still active today yeah. jen yeah butch walker um those kinds of things and even like weird residual things like we did records we did mixes for this group better than ezra and Travis McNabb became the drummer. He wasn't in the drummer. He wasn't the drummer in that band originally, but became the drummer. Yeah. And and we're connected, you know, through a lot of things these days, but originally through Sugarland. Yeah. So in, in in some strange way or another, you can always almost always draw a line back to that era of work. And and you know, I don't know what that is. It's probably true for a lot of people because I think you just dump your whole life into it at some point. You, know, you you have to if you're gonna have any kind of quote unquote success, you have to be committed in a way that most people are not going to want to be. Right. You know, especially uh, I had a, a child pretty young too, so it's it's difficult. You know, you you give up a lot in your life to make all that work, but maybe because of that, those relationships that you you tend to uh, create in that era become a little more special. I, I can point back to almost all the things that I'm still doing have something to do with that era and that place. So the, the connection you got with Jennifer Nettles right now, that goes all the way back to Exocet. How did that start? The way that started was she was in a thing called Soul Miner's Daughter, which I was not keenly aware of. It's funny because it was popular. Oh yeah. But they had been on the road together. They had all, they'd created this bond. They were like a band you know, in a van doing the thing. And so that's how I met, I met all those people at the same time. But through that experience, we became friends. So when Jen kind of circled the troops and got back together with those guys and said, here's what I want to do. I'm going to make some solo records. It's going to be the Jennifer Nettles band. I'm not sure how she put it, but that, we're, no, we're no longer doing Soul Miner's Daughter, which was a duo. Right. It's just going to be her on her own, but she still wanted to keep that band together. Yeah. And so the first order of business was we got to make a record. And those guys, someone or all of them said, we know the guy and we know the place. Hmm. And that's how it happened. So I was familiar with everybody in it except for Jen. Okay. So it, there's kind of a funny story to that in that we ended up making, we ended up ultimately making three records together over a period of three or four years. So this is like 98, I think, somewhere in there. It's like a late, you know, mid to late 90s. That first record, we just make a record like you do with anybody else. You, you know, you, you're pleased with it. You know, you've chosen the songs and 
at this point, we're done recording, we're mixing, everything's great. Uh, at that time, everybody would always do an album release. So you get done with a record, you print up, and then you're going to go do a concert somewhere. Yep. You know, Smithsville Bar was one of those kind of places. There were a, a Star Bar. There were a lot of clubs in Atlanta that, that were appropriate for that kind of thing. And I remember her saying, oh, we're going to do it at the Roxy. Which at that time was, yeah, I mean, it was kind of like, oh, that's bold move. Yeah. It's a lot of people and it's a lot of, you know, a lot of butts to put in seats. And well, good luck with that. You know, like, I think it's a fine record that we've made, but, you know, geez, I don't know. It seems kind of ambitious. The way that record ended up working, my partner Bruce kind of came in with me. And, you know, it's, and those records created the relationship that I have with Bruce. I can remember going to that. Uh, album release with Bruce and really thinking like, I hope this works out for her because I, I really like her. And yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, she's wildly talented, but gee, and you know, sure enough, it was like packed yeah. and she was singing songs, um, including some that were on this record and the, the audience is singing fully along. I mean, little did I know that some of these songs had been things that she had been working out you know, it had been little ditties or even maybe parts of what she had done with Soul Miners. I don't know for right. sure. But I know that everybody in that audience was having like a religious experience. Yeah. And by proxy, so was I. And having this complete realization of who it is that I'm working with. Mm-hmm. And and that was interesting too, just kind of going from like working with someone in a studio, making a record to seeing what they do live. And some people, it's the same and others, there's this transcendence of like, when they get on a stage, it is a different thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, she is the same person, but her abilities are on 10. And yeah. yeah. And, and so it was, it was cool to see. The temperature in the room changes when that person takes the stage. Yeah. Yeah. When you see it, you know it. Yeah. And it's such a rare thing. Yeah. You must have felt like something's got to go on. Something's got to happen with this stuff that we're working on because she's way too special for this just to come and go. That was always the goal back then. It was always like, can we get a hit off of something? Because in our minds, whether it was true or not, there was evidence to point that it was true. But if you did something that had some real success, some tangible success, then then you could then, you know, write your ticket. Yeah. There were a handful of producers in Atlanta that had Brent O'Brien, people like that, that had these success. We knew all those folks because everybody was sort of connected in one way or another. And it just seemed like, man, if, you know, if, if I could do a Pearl Jam record or whatever it might be and have that kind of success, then clearly that's the path forward in, in this business. Otherwise, you're just going to be trogging along and, and trying to pay your bills and, you know, make the payment on the console, you know, yeah. that you just, a $100,000 console you just bought. Sure. Yeah, that was a thing. I, I can remember thinking, I didn't, when I was making the, that record with Jen, I don't know that I necessarily was like, this is the next thing or whatever. And it was good, but I do remember feeling like, wow, this, this does have a chance. And her, she was very independent. She was not necessarily interested in a record label at that time. She was doing it all on her own. It's funny, you know, like looking back on it, it's it's pretty amazing that any of it really worked as well as it did. You know, it's just pure tenacity and drive. And no wonder all these people that we'll mention are all people of relevance today because of that kind of attitude that they had. And that it was just in them. To do it, you know, no one was guiding them necessarily to do any of it. They just 
were driven to do it. Right. You know, so. There was some kind of inner fire that was always blazing the trail forward for themselves. 100%. And yeah, you you flash forward another couple of decades, and that is the world we live in. Yeah. So I'm gonna put a pin in that. We're gonna come back to that idea okay. uh, at a certain point. Can we talk about ear monitors just a second? You know, there's three types of people in this world. There's there's those people that they like to spend twelve hundred dollars on a set of in ear monitors. That could sound like complete garbage, but. You, you know, there are people that like to say, oh, I, I spent $1,200 on these and they're custom fitted to my ears. They sound like complete crap, but I spent $1,200. There are those people in the world. And if that's you, God love you. Uh, I wish I had 1200 bucks to spend on something that I didn't like too. Or uh, there's the person that will go on Amazon and spend 20 bucks on a set of KZs and they will tell all their friends, I only spent 20 bucks on these things and I swear to God, they're as good as anything you could buy for a thousand dollars. Okay, I get it. I get it. You spent 20 bucks and next month after those break, you'll spend 20 bucks again. And after those will break, you'll spend 20 bucks again. By the end of the year, you will have spent over $200 on really crappy quality Chinese in-ear monitors. God love you if that's what you want to do. But there's a third person and that's who I'm here to talk to right this second. You don't have 1200 bucks and you're sure not going to cheat yourself by spending 20 bucks, but you want to spend a fair amount of money on in-ear monitors. You want something that sounds great. You want something that wears well and that's something that's super high quality, but you don't have thousands of dollars to spend that's why you need to go to sessionace.com today and check out the est and esa lines of in-ear monitors that's a dual driver hybrid design in the est and a six driver esa hybrid design universal fit in-ear monitor hands down the two best in-ear monitors i've ever put in my ears and the reason is I helped design and develop these things. I wanted to make sure that I had the absolute best thing I could ever put in my ears, the best sound quality, so that you could have the best sound quality and you don't have to break the bank. You just don't have to. So instead of just going on and on and on forever, because we got a lot more to talk about today, go to sessionace.com today. Take a look at the EST and ESA in-ear monitors. And if you want to knock 10% off, use a promo code FaderJocks. That's sessionace.com promo code FaderJocks. So you start working with Jen, she's doing all that kind of stuff. How long is it into the Sugarland thing that you become involved? Or are you on the ground floor with that? I don't know how much of my version of this story is the actual truth. Well, it's you talking and it's my <laughs> podcast. So it, for all intents and purposes, this is the of record truth. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying somebody, somebody else may have a different perspective, but what I remember on it was that Jen had completed her third record. We had maintained our relationship and worked together on all of them. At that point, I felt I was part of that team with her. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about Sugarland. I did know Kristen Hall mm-hmm. and had done a record with her as, as well uh, sometime in the 90s and thought she was wildly talented and really, really liked her. 
So I knew who she was. I didn't know Christian per se, which is funny because he had plenty going on. Oh yeah. You know, and, but just like you say, just the same reason that we might not have met is the same kind of thing of just being right on the outskirts of, yeah. and rubbing up against each other every now and then with something. Yeah. But for the most part, not not making that connection. And so she, uh, she being Jennifer, had kind of done what she wanted to do with the project of her own up to that point. Here she is trying to figure out what her next move is going to be. And Jennifer is wildly talented as a musician, but also just as a human. She can do a lot and could do anything and be successful with it. But she was compelled clearly like this was what she wanted to do she you know she'd gone that far into it and she was going to stick with it but what happened ultimately was that she got an ask sugarland was a thing there was another singer before jen and i knew very little about that it was it was just kind of an idea i think of like hey we think this kind of music would be you know successful and we all like it and we can write this way and yeah. uh, we is at that point is christian bush Kristen Hall, and they essentially had wanted to make a switch with their singer, and they asked Jen um, to do it. And shortly thereafter, Jen called me and said, I'm doing this now, and I would like for you to be involved in some way. And, you know, funny enough, you probably feel this way too. Usually when you're making a record, or often when you're making a record, there'll come a time where you might have an opportunity to play on the record mm -hmm. if you're a musician. And I can remember fighting that sometimes of just like, I'm not going to put it out there, you know, because you don't want to be that guy either. Like, right. hey, I also play. <laughs> yeah, totally. So um, I never once played a lick on any of those Jennifer Nettles. Or I believe that's true. There may be something in there, but I don't remember ever doing it. I asked her about this recently mm -hmm. because someone asked her and I was in the room and I said, you know, I don't know the answer to this question. I don't know how she knew that I could even play other than maybe, you know, someone had had a conversation with her or whatever. I do remember. And I would, sometimes I would do this thing where you're like kind of sitting in the corner. Yeah. You're just in the room. Yeah. Just doing your thing. And, and maybe there's some like psychological part of that. That's like, I am projecting that I can play. Yes. Like, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm not trying to suck right now, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and I'm not just strumming, you know, yeah. G, G and yeah. C. Yeah. But um it looks like I do this normally, yeah. just sit around, you know, and I I lounge in a certain posture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh there there's definitely a message here. I'm just trying to yeah, I'm just yeah. trying to be very subtle about the message. Right. So I may have delivered that subtle message <laughs> at some point, but I don't I don't remember. I do know that she called at some point and asked me to do some shows with her at Eddie's. And these were just her just doing her solo stuff. Yeah. And so that was a thing. The timeline's a little blurry, but all all intermixed in that era. Uh, at some point, she slash they asked me to get involved with it, and so I did. And they and I know that they had already at that point. I believe they had already gotten signed, mm -hmm. and um, and they were just kind of making a big switch with everybody in the band. So it was just going to go down to the core three of them: Jennifer Nettles, Kristen Hall, Christian Bush and then build kind of a new band yeah. around that. And so I was part of that. I you know, showed up in a place not much bigger than the room that we're in right now mm -hmm. and did a, a kind of a run-through, and I guess you could call it an audition or whatever, but it was like what, what I remember of it is like showing up, they had asked me to learn these three tunes, mm -hmm. play the three tunes, and at the end of that, they were kind of like, great, who else do you know? You know, Basically, can you help us build a band? Right. 
And that's what we did. And so those, the, all those early versions of Sugarland were my buddies, people that I had played with through the years. Yeah. And that's what became, you know, for, for a couple of years, that's what that band was. So at no point, no one said, at least initially said, Scott, you are the musical director. You are the, the engineer for this part of the train. You just sort of got it because, well, he plays really well, and he knows a lot of people. First of all, I don't know if any of us, I don't remember the term musical director being thrown out ever. I don't know if anyone one of us really knew what that was at that point. Right. And I have a story about how that became more defined. But during that time, it was like, can you essentially be the band leader? Can you help us uh, staff it yeah. and put it together? Exactly what you said. But, I mean, there's a difference between a band leader and a musical director. And the duties that come to play with that stuff have more to do in that world anyway with these at that time, three people have got to go off and do interviews mm-hmm. and they've got to do that. And somebody needs to be the point person to show up with the band, run whatever needs to be run. If there's some new thing we're doing, make sure that when those three come back, we can just do it. And, and we're not starting from zero. That role that ultimately I had in that uh, act was, was born out of that. Like, you know, whether it was a trust thing or it was just like, you've just been here the longest and you know what the best, I don't know. Right. You know, and it's all, and it's all good. Whatever anyone yeah. wants to think on that is fine. But that's ultimately what it became. And then uh, the specific part of that was when we, we went out kind of for the first for real thing, I think, that we did, like on a bigger arena level, we were opening for Brad Paisley. And they had a band leader and... I had this like specific meeting of like, we're going to put you together with him. He's going to explain how he does all this. And this probably stemmed from a conversation that those guys had with Brad and, and maybe just talking about how they run their world and him saying, Oh, well you need, you need a bill. This is what bill does for me. And essentially, um, Oh, I should look up the guy's name. <laughs> <laughs> Build good. Yeah. The guy in Wisconsin doesn't. He doesn't know. He wouldn't know. Yeah. He wouldn't know. Yeah, I definitely like I sh- almost like it was like a like a gig, like a job, like a proper job where it's like you're going to go shadow Bill. Yeah. And he's going to, you know, teach you what he does and how he does it and you know, it was like an attempt to do something in a proper way. Sure. Mind you, we're all still pretty young. You know, we're, yeah. we're, we're, we're basically kids, you know, at that point, our 20s or whatever. So, you know, it was like, here's this successful dude, Brad Paisley. He's, you know, playing arenas and, you know, he's doing, he's living the dream that we all kind of wanted at that point. I mean, it was like my, my whole goal even though it was studio-driven early on, was ultimately based around seeing shows as a young teenager in arenas and thinking, I'd love to do this. Yeah. You know, that was the most exciting thing I could think to do. So, you know, you know, here I am just kind of trailing this guy and asking questions and him presenting ideas to me and whatever and turning it into more of an official position. I didn't know it, obviously, how successful that thing would become, but truly, like, those skills ended up becoming important and helpful and necessary at a certain point, it wasn't just like playing at something. It was for real. At some point, we were playing arenas and headlining and doing those kinds of things. And there was a, a, a system that needed to be put in place. Yeah. I like to think that there was just some trust yeah. that was put into my world of just like, we trust you to do this. And this is what you're, you're going to do. 
and you're going to be, you know, this this part of the system right, right. for us. So that's the long answer. Do you think that because this whole thing was really a, an Atlanta creation, mm. I mean, it had to go through Nashville to become what it right. became, but do you think that the fact it wasn't a Nashville creation, that's why it was so much more organic? Mm. Maybe so. Um, I definitely feel like not being a resident of Nashville, which, you know, through the years, I have certainly entertained the idea of moving there. I mean, there was a time where I was driving there enough to where I just thought, this is silly, I should just get a place. But I have to say that I have felt that that has been a benefit to not be there because you're kind of the shiny new thing when you come in. You know, you're never going to be one of the eight or nine people that constantly works. You're just going to be the, you know, the unique thing that comes in every now and then to add something that just because of the nature of that is going to be different Mm -hmm. than what this guy or that guy will do. So maybe that was true to to some degree with with Sugarland and how it was treated. I think Jen is so undeniable as as talented as everybody is in that in that group early and now. Um, it needs to be led by something that is just unique, right? And and, and she always had that, yeah. and so I, I think at the end of the day that became the focus. Um, I'm not sure if that's really all that different than the way it might be for, you know, for an act that was quote unquote, a Nashville act. I think that they played a little bit on the idea that they were outside and maybe in the same way, like the Dixie chicks was clearly a Texas thing. You know, you couldn't know anything about the Dixie chicks and not know that they're from Texas, you know? And I think they did that a bit with Sugarland too. You know, it's an Atlanta thing. At the end of the day, I'm not sure that it has that identity anymore, you know. But back then, I think it was it was something that they played on. I definitely remember as a player feeling like the Nashville police, the music police, were going to come and, and just <laughs> kick me right the hell out. Because I I was never a country guy. I didn't make country records. I can remember, you know, discovering who Brad Paisley was like at a show. Yeah. And and being having my mind twisted. Oh, he that, plays guitar. And that well, that well. It's like, it's like the Eddie Van Halen of country music or yeah. whatever, you know? Yeah. And Eddie Van Halen I knew well. Brad Paisley, I had no idea who he was. Yeah. yeah so it's it's almost bizarre to like you know, you walk onto a stage with somebody and you hear them noodling. You're like, "Oh, this guy's pretty good." You yeah, know? yeah. The whole world knows you, you're you're the one who's late to the party. Here. Surprise! Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, and I just and so many times I felt like at any moment someone was just going to call me out, like, "Yeah, you're not a country guitar player or whatever." Um, so uh, there was that. There was that part of it too. But I think in in some way that kind of thing was part of why it was successful because it wasn't like the other stuff. It came from a completely different perspective that had very little to do with country music, a lot to do with singer songwriter, which certainly that, that whole element of singer songwriter is well ensconced into quote unquote country music and Nashville. So there was an easy fit there. It just wasn't, um, wasn't the same as rascal flats or any of the contemporaries that were hitting big right then. And, and, I, and I remember being prideful of that too, just knowing that what we were doing was different. Yeah. And, you know, and as, as intimidating as it could be at times, you'd walk out, at, especially with festivals where you have eight or nine acts, yeah. and they're all killer. Oh, yeah. 
you know, and, and you're moving up the ranks and, you know, you, you question it like, I don't know, do, should we be playing after dark, <laughs> you know, or whatever it is, but, but also feeling like, uh, yeah, this works. And it worked as a team. Yeah. That, that was, that was a big part of it too. Like whatever we were building that we built in the little room in Atlanta, the start of that. There was a thread of that that carried all the way through to the point where we're playing stadiums with Kenny Chesney. Yeah. You know. Playing on the records and playing on stage. Again, at the time when that was in its real heyday, the yeah. biggest heyday, that was still an unusual thing for the band that you saw playing on the stage to also be the people that were on the album as well. Oh, for sure. Well, And there still were a lot of that. There was a lot of that going on with, with Sugarland too. I mean, I played on very few things with Sugarland, mm -hmm. honestly. You know, I mean, there were, I don't know, there are things here and there, but that first record is like, uh, I don't remember who all is on that record, but it's all who's who yeah. of Nashville. And that is, uh, that is a label and a, a producer coming in and saying, we're going to, we're going to put you into the machine. Right. To some degree, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think that record sounds that way or whatever. I think it, I haven't listened to it in a while, but last time I remember thinking this record still sounds good. Yeah. It's well done. And I've probably worked with everyone that played on that record at this point with mm -hmm. other records. I have played on all the Jennifer Nettles solo stuff that she's done. Uh, I think all of it. Yeah. A lot of times there's some, uh, some of those same folks end up in those sessions, yeah. you know, like the, the classic, Guys that play on had played on records for twenty years, the Tom Bukovacs and those kind of mm -hmm. those kind of folks. So at some point or another, I've probably been in rooms with all those dudes anyway. But yeah. uh, you're right; it almost never happens. I think even today, that's still a thing. With if you see like a solo male or female singer, they're not going to necessarily be playing with people on the record that right. they grew up with. There's a few outliers when it comes to that. I know that Jason Aldean's guys play on his albums, yep. and I know a fair amount of the Paisley guys play on some of those That's albums, true. especially yeah. now. Yeah. But uh, how did it go, like with the recordings? How did it go from you're not really playing on a much, if any, of Sugarland stuff on recordings to the later stuff you're you're on? How did I, that go from that? I think that um, the stuff that we ended up on as a band was was probably mostly based around ideas where. The song had been worked up in advance. Someone would come in, uh, you know, Christian might come in with a musical idea or whatever, and they had written a song, and we're going to work through what that might be like as if we were going to record it and or we might play it at a gig and see how it goes over. Right. And on occasion, like I can remember an example being the song called Everyday America, um, I'm not saying this was that much of an influence, but I had this really distinct part. Yeah that I had created in the thing that I liked. And I remember thinking like, I wonder what, you know, if this ends up getting recut as something else, because that was certainly always the possibility and, mm -hmm. and, and probably going to be what it, what it would be like. You know how it is. It's like when a producer signs on to something, I do this as a producer. I usually want my people. Yeah, of course. You know, if it's a real band, if it's a band thing, that's different. But, you know, um, these things we're talking about are not necessarily bands. You know, it's just an entity of people that write songs. And in this case, at that point, it was two people. So it's a duo. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we work with these these same people live, and we often do do some recordings with them. 
But at the end of the day, a producer is going to be pretty influential on whether they want to use their people or they're willing to have somebody that they don't know, sure. regardless of what their position is or what they do. Like it has probably less to do with the fact that they're the live band and probably that's a benefit versus just the idea. I don't, I don't know who these guys are. Right. And studio time's expensive. Yeah, you don't yeah. really have a rapport with those people. You don't have a shorthand that you can rely on. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole lot of get to know you, and that yeah. you don't always have the runway with it, especially right. in Nashville where they're cranking records out by the hour. One hundred percent. So in those situations, it would it just came organically of like we've worked this thing up. We think this is probably going to be a cool. Everybody likes the song, you know. The, you get uh, the whole idea of demoitis is mm -hmm. true all the way through. You, you know, everything you do has that degree. Like you create something, and that becomes what your brain thinks of as this song. Yeah, and that's true for uh, uh, for everybody. So it it becomes like we like this. Let's just record it this way. So those early versions of when we were able to come onto the record as a band were born out of those kinds of instances and and having producers that were willing to to give it a shot. At that point, everybody in the band, all through, everybody's been a pro. Oh, yeah. And nobody sucked. No, so no, no, no. there was never like this thing of like, oh, it's going to be terrible and we're going to drag ass. It, right. the, and everyone had made, you know, I'd made hundreds of records. You got uh, McNabb was playing on tons of records. It's like all those, all the folks in that camp were doing other people's records. Exactly. To a large no, degree. None of us were making Nashville records. Right. And Nashville was one of the, at that point, felt like the last bastion where that existed. Yeah. Of having, you know, session men. Mm -hmm. You know, as as Tom Bukovac likes to call him, you know, the session man. Yeah, and uh, and those guys that that were uniquely uh, positioned and qualified. And what a what an interesting little you know uh, zone in the world to still have this thing going on like yeah. that. Do you think there's a big difference in the sound of the albums, early Sugarland albums, the stuff that more involves the people that were in the day to day? Of, of making that music? Do you think there's a huge difference in the sound of those records? I thought it was definitely there's a huge difference. I think part of that is just born out of the idea that music changes and tastes evolve and technologies become part of it. It's hard to say exactly. Like Travis probably played, Travis and Brandon played the most on those records. And when I hear Travis play now, it sounds just like I, I remember him sounding 10 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, that, that part of it hasn't changed. And Trav also played on one of the solo records that we did with Dan Huff for Jen. Hmm. And that was an interesting thing because that's a good example of what you're talking about where it was an integration of me and Travis. And I'm trying to think of anyone else, probably nobody else from, from any of the bands, mm -hmm. but still people we knew like Paul Bushnell and guys that had worked on not only Sugarland records, but Jen stuff and had, we'd all, we knew each other to some degree. Everybody in the room kind of knew each other and of course Dan Huff which as a guitar player I, was gonna I, I knew who he was <laughs> I was yeah. going to ask Oh yeah <laughs> You know I had some really good experiences with Dan I was thinking about it the other day I ended up having some unique times with Dan because yep. not only did we do those sessions which was a large all live everybody on the floor is this place called the castle do you know that place Oh uh, yeah yeah It's a wild you know has this kind of Al Capone history Yeah and looks like a gothic castle. Yeah, big old castle. Yeah, it's wild. 
So, but we're all just live on the floor, you know, doing it kind of old school and, and coming up with ideas on the spot. Like here's this song. It kind of goes like this. Oh, well, you know, um, I, I could do this. I could do that. Oh, whoa. Could you do it on a, I don't remember what the, the, one of these tunes I ended up playing like this tenor. It was almost like a ukulele. It was a guitar. It was tuned like a guitar, but it was, had these kind of nylon-y rubbery strings on it. It was some weird thing that Paul just happened to have like in a case, like, here, try this. Like, okay. And then that becomes the song. We start working around that. Right. And, and honestly, like in those moments, it's kind of a thank God moment of like, you're always wanting to contribute. And, sure. and when you're in a group of like eight incredible contributors, you know, it's like walking that line of like eagerly wanting to get an idea in just for the sake of an idea. And obviously only wanting to present something unless it truly, truly works. And pretty early on in that session, there's some measure of like, well, you know, you're Jen's guy. You've, you've been working with her for a long time. You're here partly because you can be a nice conduit and, you know, you can help, we can help make all this musical language work. And hopefully you're a good player, you know, hopefully you're going to bring something to the table. But you know, the, at the end of the day, I feel this as a producer or as uh, anytime I'm doing a record with somebody, I don't know. You just don't know. You don't know what someone is going to be able to do or isn't going to be able to do. So it's nice when it just works, you know, you walk in and pretty quickly, everyone, you're just on the same page and doing your thing. Still, there's the Dan F factor as a guitar player. You're just like, I wonder if he's analyzing everything I do. He's probably thinking he could do it all better with one hand tied behind his back. Why would I pick up this guitar in the same room with that guy? And (laughs) and I believe he's keenly aware of it, you know, and I think he's pretty good about disarming that, Mm -hmm. you know, in his own way without being obvious about it at all, but just by recognizing the good and stuff and pointing it out and working with people and also even people that he works with over and over and over again, there were a handful of those kind of folks on on that session that he does, he's done hundreds of records with, records that the world knows, you know, successful things. His kind of language with them very quickly became the same language that we all spoke, whether that is attributed to everyone in that room is just really good mm-hmm. and can, can deal with it and knows what's up. Or if it's just, you know, I don't know well, either way, we're on the same page really, really quickly. But that, that ended up leading into some other situations where, um, I found myself out in California with Dan and it's me and Dan and Matt Chamberlain wow. and Paul, but yeah, again, it's one of those like, um, should I be in this room? <laughs> you know, uh, I think it's healthy to keep that yeah. in there somewhere. You know what I mean? And I, I believe everybody kind of feels that way. Uh, I'm not just trying to be humble about it, but I think everybody is, they want, everyone wants to create the best thing possible. And Matt Chamberlain was uniquely qualified in my mind as someone who I'd been kind of musically chasing Yeah, because he's done so many things that I just thought were so good. So many albums. So many. And I relate to that part of a song or a production right. uh, probably quicker than anything else. If and, and vice versa. If the drums are not there, the song is done for me. Yeah. It has to be. That has to be right. Yeah. So when you hear things like One Headlight mm-hmm. and stuff like that, where it's just this undeniable groove, and then you find out, oh, it's this guy, Matt Chamberlain, you know, and, and at that point, probably, you know, who he is, but you know, I mean, just all the things he's done sure. are, are of that nature. Yeah. And then to be in the room with that dude 
and Dan. Yeah. And just like, wow, how did this happen? You know, and watching him do his thing and being just as eager to get it right as anybody else. And there's no such thing as dialing it in right. from anybody. Everybody's absolutely, completely focused yeah. and working towards it. I cherish those those experiences. You know. so, so, you know, being a drummer, obviously I'm going to have to, to sit on this Matt Chamberlain yeah. thing for a few minutes because there's a, there's a lot to mine, uh, for me at least. How is it different to work with someone that's that caliber of drumming artist versus a guy that plays drums really well and I think he's going to get us a drum track that we can use? Yeah. What's the real difference if you can quantify it? I, I think that, and this is, I've been fortunate in that I've had great relationships with, I think, some of the best drummers in the world. And there is a um, kind of an ESP thing that happens with all of those dudes. And whether that's you creating it or them creating it, I don't know. And because it's unspoken, it's hard to quantify it. Mm -hmm. But there are things that happen with my right hand that sync up with what that kind of a drummer is doing, probably with their right hand too, but just these little syncs. Yeah. And when those things happen, what I love is when those things happen and everybody feels it. Yeah. You know, and it just, it's one of those things where it makes it, you could write it out and it could be maybe just as effective in some way, but, um, you know, as far as a listener is concerned, but in the moment of playing something, when those things just kind of happen, yeah. it, there's nothing better. And those things never happen with lesser drummers unless it's just a pure accident, but they happen over and over and over and over again with drummers of a certain caliber. Yeah. And man, it's, it is so spoiling. You see the light in that there's only one way to make records. Yeah. And it's with, you know, gah, 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 these kinds of people. <laughs> yeah. If you find a new one, that's great. Yeah. But if not, there's these four or five yeah. that do it every single time, yeah. you know. So there's that. I, I, I also thought he was really creative. I mean, all these guys, they all hold these attributes. But um, real creative in terms of sounds, you know, or, and having the luxury to say, hey, it's not, you know, it's not this 1975 Ludwig snare. It's one of the, you know, you have a bazillion. I'm, I've got a lot of choices. Yeah. And usually, you know, um, you don't have the time or the luxury to like, well, let's try them all, <laughs> you know, but I felt like he was creative in that way. I think at some point, like he, he took bottom heads off and kind of went with concert toms for a thing. Yeah. It'd just be like a moment. Like, you know what I hear here? Concert toms. Give me 30 minutes. I'm going to redo all this shit. Yeah, yeah. And it would be worth it. You know, everyone's sure. like, normally 30 minutes. Are you crazy? But, you know, when it's somebody like that, you're like, yeah, whatever I do, do think. I want to hear it. Yeah. I'm excited to hear it. You know, there'll be an anticipation in that 30 minutes or whatever it's going to be. So I remember him being real creative in that way. They did the Phil Collins, um, along with the concert toms. They did the Phil Collins gated uh, talk back gag, yeah. yep. which is how those how that drum sound came to be, and it, it uh, and I'd always heard that that was kind of a mistake or just a you know, something that happened. Sure, they heard that sound and thought, and this is um, yeah, That's maybe you it. could explain it better than me. How, how did it happen? Well, yeah, it was it was almost quite literally, at least the way the folklore goes, it just basically somebody leans on the talkback button, and then here's this sound coming out of the speakers that, like, what was that thing? Right. What was that? Do that again. Wait, wait, wait. Do that thing again. Wait a second. Oh, my God. That's, that's something I've never heard before. Right, right. And generally, that's, that's the thing, I think. When, when it's something I haven't heard before, and it feels right, 
then all of a sudden that's when you want to explore it. Right. My, my thing with people like Matt and having that suggestion is like at a certain point you don't have the track record, but you've got the taste in your ear to know this thing. How do you get from, I need to take 30 minutes. I'm Matt from Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not Matt Chamberlain. Uh-huh. I'm a guy named Matt who has a great idea yeah. to many albums later. Yeah. If the guy says he needs 30 minutes, you give the guy the 30 minutes yeah. because the, his taste and his ear for those things must have always been there. It's just a matter of how do you get to that point where people are willing to let you take a, a swing at something. And I'm fascinated by that because they're the same person. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's different is that they've made enough good suggestions that all of them have amassed into a body of work. Like when you listen to a Matt Chamberlain track, not that he hasn't gotten better over the years, but he was already that thing before. It's the same thing I said about Travis. It's there's a style. Yeah. And it's whether you like it or not, you're, you're, if you have a style, it's probably in you Yeah. from year one or two. And you're just cultivating it at that point. Yeah. I would say this. It is it is interesting to think about that. He's a sweet, quiet kind of dude. That was my take. And I've been in the room with him a number of times now. I, I wouldn't say, you know, I know him, know him, but I've, I've worked with him professionally a couple times. And each time, he's not um, the center of attention. Yeah. He's, he's pretty demure about his approach. So I think at this point... A lot of that comes from a trust. You just you know who he is, you know who he's done, and so there's a trust. The same way if any you know, if if anyone that's working with you trusts you and you say I need thirty minutes to do something, then you know, you you're gonna get it. That's built from all of his experiences in the past. Versus there are those people, I've worked with people that just have like a bigger than life personality and they are really good at not to say that all these people can back it up. At a certain level, everyone can back it up. Right. But it's still interesting. At a at all levels, there's quiet people and there's loud, you know, in your face people and people that are kind of selling themselves at all times. Right. And it's that interesting mix at all at all times of just like it, it, I don't know if any of these people would ever come together in their walks of life if it weren't for music. Right. But usually, you you spot that in every one of these sessions. Just by the end of it, everyone's personality is usually uh, on the wall for everyone to see. And he is particularly quiet and is um, thoughtful and intentful in his work and will be the first to, to lay claim to a bad take. And, you know, and that's so relative, you know what I mean? It's like (laughs) bad compared to what, (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's like, it's all good, but, uh, but, but, you know, maybe even more importantly at that level is knowing that, you know I mean? Like left to my own devices, I I do know when I have a take that I like and it's, and of course in today's pro tools world is like, yeah, earmark that and let's go on to the next thing. But I am certainly happy to work well beyond the scope of what most people would be willing to work to get something to get Nirvana on tape. Sure. And I felt like that all those dudes are like that. If, if you just let them go, there's never a point where someone's like, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. I'll never make another record yeah. again. Yeah. That was the best thing ever. Uh, zero chance of that happening. It's like, can we have a hundred takes? Great. We'll take them all. Yeah. 
you know. You know, there's the the famous stories about Percaro, you know, by the, the first or second take, yeah. you know, throwing the sticks going, yeah. Yeah. that's it. I hope yeah. you got it. It, See, it's, it's a different thing. It's a different world. Now, too. I think I think that is built, and I've seen this, and I know people just like that. And it's not like they can't back it up. They don't have that kind of level of talent or whatever. But I think sometimes that is born, and I get this, where you're in a situation, I've read, we've talked about the Lukather book. Mm-hmm. And so I know just from those kind of insights, you know, what it was like yeah. and what, you know, what his perspective on it was. I think in those situations, there were a couple times where either it was from that book or other stories that I've heard where uh, Picaro was the leader of a, of a situation. He was, you know, called the band leader, was session leader. Yeah. And he, they're working with someone who is just someone who, who's got the money to hire Jeff Picaro and Steve Lukather and whatever, all these super pros. Sure. And they're not anybody that's ever going to have like a real career per se, but they're giving it a shot, you know, yeah. and truth be told, you never know. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. I mean, we, we all have worked with people that we probably at one point thought there is no way. You know, and sure enough, it's like uh, it's the next biggest. This the next big thing. So uh, I think I, that I might be thinking of one or two right yeah, now. It happens. <laughs> it, happens. <laughs> it happens. Tenacity and hard work wins over over talent every time. Oh, it just yeah. does. But um, I think in those situations, like I've heard so many stories where if somebody didn't speak up and just say that was it, that was the one, and convince artist X that that was the one. And I feel like he was, he played that role a lot and saved everybody from a lot of like, Oh man, just going again. Yeah, Let's circle the block because this person is here for an experience. This is their vacation. Yeah. You know, they've literally taken what would be vacation money and have now applied it towards making a record. Yeah. And on top of it to make it worse, this is the one time mm-hmm. it's ever going to happen. So if that's the one time you're going to go and, you know, and have this great experience, do you, you don't want it to be over anytime yeah. soon. <laughs> it's stretching as low yeah. as you can get. Squeeze all the juice out of it. <laughs> Unfortunately for us on the other side of the glass, this is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to be here all day while this person gets their jollies. There's absolutely nothing I could do in take 12 no. that I could have done better in take three. Right. And I probably at some point will do worse. Yeah. There's a point of diminishing return. For sure. Like at a certain point, my brain my brain checked out a long time ago, yeah. and I'm still giving you the thing I did, but it doesn't have nearly the sauce that yeah. that early one did. Because yeah. I was excited about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I thought we were going to move on to the next song now. Right. So I like to think that even, even in a situation with Quincy Jones as a producer, well, first of all, I, I doubt, you know, it's nice. It's a funny story to think that Picaro might just – throws sticks down at the end of Billie Jean or whatever, you know, <laughs> beat it or whatever. Um, but I doubt it. I, I doubt it went that way, you know. Maybe it did, but probably not. So Never let the truth get in the way of a good That's story. That's true. That's true. That's true. Tell me this. Is there a path or how do you know when you've got the take and you need to stand up for the take? Yeah. The only thing I can say to answer that question is, you know, I mean, everything is just using your ears and listening at all times. That's happening all through a take and you're making, you're analyzing in a way constantly through a whole take. And sometimes you get to the end of one and you think either, you know, nothing in that bothered me. Yeah. And that might be the reason it's the take, or there might be something like just in there, like it just felt a certain way. It's a little hard to to quantify what that means. Mm -hmm. 
But we definitely all know that feeling of getting to the end of something and feeling like that was the one. Mm-hmm. That being said, you know, what's always funny is there's usually someone in the mix that's like, that was not the one. <laughs> Meaning that wasn't my one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all were stellar. Yeah. And and that's that's the danger of listening to live recordings too. You get done with a show, somebody's like, that was the greatest show ever. And then I've learned, don't listen to that tape. No. Because you'll find you'll definitely find out you're wrong. <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes that was the worst show ever. And you listen to the tape and you were wrong. It wasn't terrible. You know, I mean you might have the same reasoning for it, but at the end of the day, we're all kind of in our own world about what we're doing to create the art, what we're doing to create the music. Mm-hmm. And while there is a, a, obviously a big part of that is how we feel with one another, mm-hmm. it's still kind of a personal thing. You know, how you feel about it is your own feeling. If you can get the majority of, of people in the room to agree this is worth going and listening to, then that, that has a good chance of becoming the take, the one, you know. And I love that we're talking about doing things as a group because, you know, a few years ago it would be easy to, uh, nobody was talking about it because people weren't really outside of places like Nashville. It really wasn't happening too much. Right. And still, obviously we, we do our work remotely and we sure. do, we do things to make money. But um, I do think there is a little bit of a push for people to get back in a room together. And what I mean by that is the people that are paying the bills are seeing that yep. as an important part of the, of the process. I don't think any musicians ever thought I'm much better by myself. <laughs> it's definitely not well, better. There might be a few. I Maybe. know. <laughs> that's, that's a different story. That's different. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like I know some of the best drum ideas that I've ever gotten to play on a recording have not come from me. Sometimes mm-hmm. I, I would say at least half the time. At a certain point, with a certain with a certain caliber of musician, mm-hmm. when you're in a room full of those people and everybody's listening, it's interactive. And so, when I do something, that's going to slightly change what you do a little bit because you're going to be inspired by that thing, oh. and you're going to find a complimentary thing to go with it, or you're going to have an idea. Yep. And that's what I like about it yeah. is when someone we're 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 headed towards this destination somewhere near the horizon and we're all moving together and it's slowly sort of funneling its way together and you know i'll have a bass player go hey on that one thing try this Mm -hmm. and he's not saying you know what you don't play very well i need to tell you what to do he's saying i have an idea that instead of us having to play it a few times for you for me to shoehorn it in how about i suggest this thing so that we can just immediately lock up. Yeah. You can, you know where I'm at. Yep. If it doesn't happen automatically, you know, you know where I'm going, you know where I'm, I'm taking this thing. Let's go together. It really is this phenomenon where the best ideas are flying around in the room and we're just sort of reaching up into the air mm-hmm. and grabbing those best ideas and, and pulling them down to us. Mm-hmm. And we're just fitting those pieces together. You don't, Always get, I've got some drum tracks I've got to do tomorrow mm-hmm. that, you know, it's it's just like when people send you guitar stuff. There's a certain amount of this that's already done. You're trying to hear into the thing. You're trying to, I think this works. I think that's pretty good. You know, 
a lot of times beyond knowing when you've got everybody there and it's all happening, it's all coming together at the same time. Yeah. It's this uh, amazing gumbo of flavors that you're, you're watching it happen. You're listening to it happen. And you don't get that when it's just you by yourself with whatever's already been done. Mm-hmm. And, I know what I'd rather do. Unfortunately, that's not always the way that we get to work. Boy, there's a lot to unpack in all that. And I've had situations recently, in fact, where I've done work that was just written. And I'm not a strong reader, so it isn't my forte. I had uh, the great fortune to do a record with Jen uh, during COVID times, just before leading up to it. And then, and then. Ultimately, ended up be, some of it ended up becoming some remote work that came out of it as well because we were all having to work remote. But the producer on it was a guy named Alex Lackamore. Alex is uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda's kind of right-hand musical guy, Hamilton, and is, is just full of accolades and Grammys and, you know, all, you know he's, he's the man. He comes from a place of a very schooled, you know, he, he can read and write better than probably anybody that I know, and he understands everything. I mean, you know, that the Broadway world, if, if anybody's ever interested, there's a lot of, like, cool YouTube footage of what happens in the pit at any of these Broadway shows. It is so overwhelming, you know. Like, I imagine just like anything as a musician, you get into it and you do it, and it becomes rote. You just, you know what you're doing at some point. But to look at it, it's there's a lot going on, and somebody like Alex is so uniquely qualified to pull all of that together because I just feel like he's got one of those heads where there's a million musical things happening at once, and he has a unique understanding of what each of them means. Now, that being said, there's kind of two parts to this thought. This was another situation where Jen wanted to make a record that was Broadway-inspired, kind of uh, American Songbook-inspired music, but wanting to do her own twist on it, you know, and having a conversation with Alex and the two of them meeting and finding a lot of mutual respect for one another and agreeing, yes, we want to do this record together. Well, how do you want to do it? And, And this is where it gets really tricky because someone has a way in which they do things that that are enormously successful like hamilton has to be one of like if there's a top 10 list of most successful things it's probably on i don't know but the world knows these things that this dude's involved with more so than just a a really successful producer in nashville or just in music in general because it it paints so far outside the lines of just any one thing, right? It's not the kind of thing where someone's going to come in and go, that's nice what you've been doing this whole time, but you're doing it all wrong. And here's how it's going to go. So obviously nobody's coming in with that kind of an attitude. And in fact, the idea that you're being called into a world where again, it's like this person has a methodology that is bigger than most producers that I've worked with and just in terms of scope because they have to deal with symphonic stuff. So they're dealing with hundreds of musicians that are on their short list. And, and every one of them is thought out to some degree. If it's three violists, then it's going to be these three because they're the ones that I like, you know, so everything is thought up to, to that kind of detail. So when that record was was being put together, there at some point was a conversation where Jen said, the one thing I know I want to do in this in terms of staffing is I want to have Scott come up and be a part of it, which, 
you know, that's the kind of thing that it makes certain parts of my body pucker. You know what I mean? Because it's like having a situation where he's very used to writing every little bit of it out. Obviously, in the Broadway world, that's how it is. Yeah. There's there's really never, probably ever, rarely at least, a moment where someone's like, hey, what do you think, sax guy? Right. It's just, here's a part, and here's how it works with these other 80 things that are happening. And if you don't play that part, it's not going to work with these 80 things. So him being thrust into a situation and it was baby steps. Like the first thing that I did was all written out. And it was this very kind of baroque almost classical guitar thing, which again, when you think of Scott Patton, you probably don't think of Baroque classical (laughs) guitar. I'm not even the guy that sits in the corner at a wedding, you know, and you don't even have one of those little footstools. Do you? I do. I you do. Just had to do. come with it. That I think day. it's because my legs are shorter than they're supposed to be, though. So it's uncomfortable unless I have some prop. My, but what was what was funny is that my way of getting through that was not to sit and sight read, like literally everybody else that was showing up to that session. Almost probably certainly had never looked at it or heard it or knew what was going on, and not one bit of that musically would you wouldn't know that. Everyone sits down. That's what they're used, especially like the symphonic stuff. Yeah. So this is a full string section. Yep. P.S. It's all live in the room with Jen. I'm not even in a booth. The other guitar player is in a booth. There's two of us, both playing acoustic guitar. And he's in a booth. I'm not in the booth. I'm literally like right next to the first chair violinist. Like if I screw up, I mean, the only thing I can do is not play right. to save myself. Yeah. So my answer for that was to learn it. And what's funny about it was that, um, like, the thing I'm learning is complementary, especially to the other guitar part. There's things that you're playing that if you just hear my part don't really make sense until you hear the other part, you know? So I just, to the best of my ability, you know, my slow, you know, <laughs> EGBDF, FACE, <laughs> I think I got this. I mean, literally, it's so bad as a guitar player. It's We're all, so many of us are guilty of it. When you find, like, a great reader as a guitar player, it's such an anomaly. Like the Bill Hatchers, right. or, you know what I mean? Right. And, and that's why he gets those gigs, you know, I mean, other than his wild talent. So I've learned this thing and which also means I don't, if, if I'm being asked, you know, can you play measure 63? Like, uh, can you hum it first? You know, like, <laughs> you know, so I know that I'm putting myself in a precarious situation, but this is the only way I'm assuring my brain of how to get through it. Sure. At some point, the other guitar player shows up and I say to him, Hey, do you, you want to run this? real quick before we get started and he was like super eager which made me feel like oh good it wouldn't have surprised me if he had just been like why right 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 right. you know it's all on the page there buddy i don't need to run it you know like (laughs) uh but thankfully he was he was enough of a rocker himself to where he was like yeah let's do it you know it was almost like we were like two kids in the corner trying to you know get something over on the teacher but anyway I walk in his booth and we start playing through the thing. And at some point, you know, he looks over, he's like, I don't have my score. And I'm, obviously his score is different than mine. Yeah. And he's like, did you memorize this? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> but he was like, he was like, holy shit, man. Like, That's a lot. I'm like, it's the only way I can get through it, man. But, you know, but I, I do know it. Yeah. And so we got through it. Great. And that was kind of the first baby step. I think in some ways of Alex being able to see, okay, cool. You know, this guy isn't going to destroy my work. And, uh, the, the, the big, what I'm trying to get at is that over time, and it's happened with the very next song, we would usually do two or three Mm -hmm. in a day. And we did this, we would do 
a week's worth of work, and then we would take a break for various reasons, and then we'd come back, and it was never there was never a big string of work. It was just two or three things in a, in a chunk, go home, come back a month later, whatever. Through that process, it got to where it was like, well, I don't, I don't know how we're going to do this. What do you think? And you know, we, we hear it like this. We were thinking like this kind of a, like a blackbird thing, you know, and squarely putting stuff in my world. Like, what do you think? And of course, that doesn't mean that my idea is going to be the idea. But at the same time, someone's given me an opportunity to lead the thing. This is what I think. This is the arrangement that I think would work. And this is how I would do it. This is the finger style or whatever. And then that worked. And slowly but surely, it just got to where we're closer than we started for sure to the kind of sessions that we've been describing this whole time mm-hmm. of people in a room, not necessarily reading music. Maybe there's a chart, there's an outline. There's certainly an arrangement. Mm-hmm. It's certainly by the time you're making, by the time you're taking takes, there's an arrangement, but nonetheless, it's certainly, nobody walks into that room knowing exactly what they're going to do. That just, other than maybe the lyric, nothing is to that degree. Right. And everything is open for change, yep. which is the exact opposite of what day one Baroque Scott guitar was. <laughs> nothing is open to interpretation. This is all going to go just like this. Yep. By the end of those sessions, it was certainly much closer, if not at times exactly, hey, what are we going to do? And let's sit in a room. And by that time, the kind of musicians that we've been talking about were outnumbering the kind of musicians that are on the other side of it that are just readers. So like um, Josh was part of it. Mm-hmm. And Paul Bushnell that I mentioned earlier. And Andy Keenan, and Victor and Driz O. I always want to say Andrizio. It's Andrizzo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Another great drummer. Another killer drummer. And seeing Alex, I'm older than Alex. I don't know by how much, but enough. Seeing Alex... Have this because at the end of the day, Alex is like a, a he loves rush, he loves rock, and um, just his talents. I don't think ever led him down those paths. He was so gifted in his abilities and, and his hard work of being so uniquely qualified to be in the Broadway world that I don't know that Alex ever spent any time in a rock band. I could be wrong, but the, judging the, from the joy on his face of having kind of those experiences and not necessarily having that be his everyday thing. I felt like it was, by the end of that, we had all had an experience together. We all learned a little bit of this, and he learned a little bit of that. And all that led to, we, we ultimately did do a gig together, which was at the White House, which is, you know, sounds like that's, that's a weird thing to even say now. But here we are playing at the White House together and just looking over at Alex and also in a, in a funny way, like kind of being in control of Alex. Cause now it's like, you're in my world now. Yeah. <laughs> I count them off, <laughs> you know, and, and him absolutely loving that, you know, just getting to be kind of, you know, I'm just going to play a bunch of blocky B three chords over this Bon Jovi tune, you know, the Jen did a tune with John Bon Jovi. And that was the, when you, when you do that gig, Somebody in this case, uh, Joe's Joe Biden's wife, is requesting. I want this. I want this. I want this. You know, of course, like this is what we're doing. I guess <laughs> we're going to do these tunes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, at Doctor Biden's request. So um, yeah, to look over at Alex and just see him probably playing the easiest thing he's played in in God knows how long, completely loving it. You know, it was just a joy of joys.
Okay, we're going to take a pause for just a second. We're going to let you breathe. We're going to let you digest all we've talked about so far, marinate in it a second. And while you're doing that, let's talk about plugins. Because if you do any kind of recording at home, on the go, any kind of recording in your computer, you use plugins of some sort. You use EQ, compression, reverb, delay, all kinds of different things. I want to tell you, for the past 20 years, I've been using Waves plugins on every single mix and every single mastering session I've ever done. We're talking about thousands of recordings that I've used Waves plugins on. Their new SSL EV2 plugin is the closest thing that you're going to get in the computer to working with an actual SSL console. It sounds that good. It responds like a real SSL console. Their ship's omni-channel is the plugin I have wanted my entire life. It does the work of six different plugins. It's amazing. You can get those today by going to faderjocks.com slash waves. Support the show by picking up your plugins at waves. You can check out all the specials they've got for you there, whether it's $29 for a plugin or buy two, get two free. They've always got some kind of cool sale to make sure that you get the best value for your dollar. And I got to tell you, hands down, the most valuable plugins I've used. That's why I use them every single day and have done that for two solid decades. So go to faderjocks.com slash waves and pick up your own EQ, reverb, compression, channel strip. You pick. There's every kind of effect you can think of. Go right there today, faderjocks.com slash waves. Thanks for supporting the show. How do you try and bring a version of yourself that helps to enhance the experience? It is a skill. You have to sort of read the room. I find it a little easier to do the older I get and the more I do it. So that tells me that experience matters. Mm -hmm. But I think that I've always been pretty good at staying quiet when I need to. Probably learned that from being around people that couldn't. Mm. You know, so it's taught me just every now and then, you know, just really listen to what's going on and and don't interject right away. I can't tell you how many times someone has accused me of being much smarter than I am simply because I just didn't say anything. Right. And I just just waited. It's not even always a real conscious thought, but that is how that's what I do. I, I sit down, I assess what's going on. You can tell right away that people are going to talk a lot mm-hmm. and you listen to what they have to say and you determine how valuable that might be in the moment. And constantly reading the room and listening and working your way through those situations. If you can get through, you know, a situation that might be high pressure, regardless of uh, your experiences, at some point, if you start getting into situations that are high pressure, you know, live TV, stuff like that, if you can get through it in a competent way, doesn't have to be the best thing you've ever done, but get through it in a competent way. You, you realize that, first of all, everybody on the stage feels exactly the same, mm. you know, including people that put that stage together, your techs. Everybody has an, an element of this is important. We need to get through this. <clears throat> and, and a singer will feel that too. You know, there's that, there's that push and pull between 
and let's just say with Jen, like what she's doing in her job and what she needs to sit on to make her kind of cushion comfortable, what she needs to be able to rely on and mm-hmm. lean on. If it's, you know, a certain way that just to get pitch correct or rhythm correct or whatever it is, you know, I mean, uh, it's always interesting to, to see what a, a singer will put in their ear mix, Yeah, you know, and more often than not, it's almost nothing. You know, I mean, most of them that I work with, it's just, it, and sometimes you don't, it's a blow to your ego. You don't always. <laughs> you, yeah. I'm not the most important thing in your ear. You, know, you don't want to always know what everyone's listening to. So you put them on and be like, wow. So you don't hear anything I'm doing but with, with Jen. I will sort of proudly say that there is me in there. Yeah. That's been that way for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so the push and the pull between her and I is that synergetic thing that's happening built on all those years and we rely on one another to get through these situations and the joy comes at the end of a thing like that where you're like not only did we do it but we did it well enough to where we can be happy about it yeah that's that's what i'm doing i'm just coming into any given situation and i'm really trying to listen first Mm -hmm. for where i am going to fit in what kind of a role i'm going to play whether it's being a supporter or a leader or a driver or whatever right. and, or, or nothing, you know, sometimes you might decide what I have to offer here is to this. I, you don't need me hmm. in this moment, like in a session I'm talking about, not necessarily. And this isn't a surprise. Right. right. <laughs> no, no, I'm not gonna play that guitar part today. I don't mean that, but just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, just like sometimes you'll hear somebody do something and think like, you know what, just piano vocal is how this needs to go. Right. Or, you know, just acoustic guitar and vocal. I mean, that happens too, you know, I think Stay, which was a big hit for Jen, and a song that we played before Sugarland was a thing, you know, it was a song that she that had come out of those solo years. The the treatment on that, it could have been a band thing, but ultimately is an acoustic guitar, a B three and a vocal. And that that becomes a choice. When that happened, I I believe it was the kind of thing where a lot of people were like, You're crazy that's not a good idea or, you know, this will never be right. anything. And it turned out to be, I, I think that's the most in her career, you know, because she won a Grammy for it and she's the only writer on it. And in Nashville, that's a big deal. Cause Huge. yeah, I mean, in the pop world too, obviously there's yeah. 18 writers on any given, you know, tune that's on the radio. Right. But even in Nashville, there's two or three writers on a lot of things. So a solo, right. Is a big deal. So as a female solo writer, Number one song, Grammy winning, gets you into the category of now it's you and Dolly Parton. Yeah. And that's it. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't know if that's true, but that's something like that. Yeah. Very few people. It's it's rarefied air. For sure. Easily. Yeah. Who You know, and and it's probably Christian that made that choice, you know, credit where credit is due. He was definitely the one in the room going, you know what? I think it's this and, and fighting to even have it on the record. Right. I remember that being a thing. Like hmm. there was definitely a thought from somebody in that label. It was like, I don't know about this, you know? So I have this, I don't know if it's a cliche, but it's an idea that um, constantly rolls around in my head that when you're in a room of people, whether it's um, in the studio or on the road, if you look around the room and you can't spot the nut job, mm. then it's probably you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 
with this idea of experiences, over the last year, we've gotten to do a fair amount of traveling mm-hmm. and playing together and mm-hmm. staying in the same hotel room, just having to be around each other mm-hmm. enough. One of the things that I appreciate about you is that it's one of the few times in my life when I can look around the room and immediately spot the nut jobs, but then spot the one other sane enough person <laughs> in the room. Right. So when you're trying to to bring your best self to an experience, knowing that the nature of the business that we're in, Mm -hmm. you're going to have, for lack of a better adjective, you're going to have some nut jobs that you have to deal with. How do you find your place to be able to, to be relatively sane and relatively rational and maybe deal with a situation that isn't all that rational, whether it's just an artist in the studio having no clue what they want or being on the road and having a group of people or a person who may not know what to do. And it makes for a chaotic situation. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a situation we would certainly try to avoid in the first place. Yeah. You know, and usually I would think you could almost guess. I mean, I do feel like I've very willingly put myself in a position a time or two in the last year or so that looking back on it, it's like I I probably could have guessed that some of these things might happen. (laughs) So there's that too, you know, and and if you do that and you're honest with yourself, it becomes a little easier to deal with because you're just like, hey, you know, like I've done this enough to know these are possibilities. I don't know how how I would do it if I was a younger person. Not to like say that you bring um, you know your all your laurels with you into a situation, but you bring your experiences. And if you've done it long enough and well enough, and there's enough visible stuff, because you know, it's like the difference between doing something that the world can see and doing something great that the world can't see musically, there may be no difference. You may be just as talented and just as deserving or whatever at, at all levels. But if you're lucky enough to get into situations where the world, Oh, you play with Lady Gaga, you did a thing with Beyonce, whatever, those kinds of things, even as little as they are, you know what I mean? Like, yes, I played on a stage with Beyonce. She doesn't know me. I don't know her. Someone else showed up for someone did my job. You know, even even to like to the ump degree, like she's going to come here and she's going to stand here and she's going to move here during this time and this and this got it. Great. And then we will see her at the performance. And that's how that went. But, um, I, I, I tend to, to try to use that to say, Hey, look, I have done, I've done these things you're trying to do Mm -hmm. and I'm coming with these experiences and I'll give you an opportunity to make this better by listening to me and you either take my advice or you don't. And if you don't take my advice on a situation and it still blows up, then for me, I'm, I'm, I'm out. You know what I mean? That's, that's how I would deal with it. I, I do find that when people are genuinely, first of all, I mean, you wouldn't put up with this from anybody that wasn't at least musically worthy. There has to be enough of that going on where you're like, this is a good musical experience and these people are they have talents and they're doing things that most of the world can't do and that's why we're in a room together right now doing something right. you know so there's that part of it too you're not just randomly stuck with you know crazy people although it does feel that way <laughs> it does feel that way a lot sometimes <laughs> I, I understand that but um i don't know i just try to have those conver- just I, I have found that being honest with people even when it's a little painful right. is is the only way to get me through it 
You know, right. I, I definitely like, I just can't play games anymore. Right. If this happens, like I just had, I've had some experiences in the last few months where I was dealing with some people that don't do it all, that don't make records all the time. Right. You know, and they're, they're saying things that I just believe are wrong about like the, the process mm-hmm. and what is the best way to handle something. This isn't the situation where this is someone's only record. These are people that have made records before, but you know, they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're doing whatever they do in their life and they can afford to hire good people to make records with. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means that they're going to listen to your ideas and respect where you're coming from and want you to guide. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it means they have a distinct idea about how something should be done. And in some of those cases, it makes no sense whatsoever if you know what you're doing. And so you have to navigate those waters and say in a nice way, you know, like, actually, I, th- I think you're probably wrong about this or, you know, what you're saying to me is just not how it's going to work. You know, if you, if you, like, I've had people describe situations that are more like band situations. Like mm-hmm. if we're, if we were the police, then this might be a relevant conversation. Also, if you've ever seen any documentaries about the police and how they worked as a band, It'll tell you something. Uh, yeah. It was fraught with, there was a lot of. A lot of dysfunction. A lot of push. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and, uh, and that's, when is that ever the situation when someone's just hiring you to make, you know, to make a record? It's like, we're, we're not going to know each other like that at the end of this. You right. Know? The, here's, here's how to get from point A to point B right. with your budget. Just being honest, you know, I found verses like you could, you could just, you could say, that's a great idea, you know, because, because this person is paying the way for everyone to have a gig for the next two weeks or whatever it is. And you could just go along with it and get through it. But, uh, but it would suck. I don't think I always make the best decision in these, in these cases. How, when you talk about honesty, yeah. eventually we'd like to think that our reputation and our stock and trade yeah. is in bringing the most honest version of ourselves mm-hmm. to every situation, to every personality, to every conflict, mm-hmm. how do you decide how much of what you feel is the truth is what you present? Or, or because, I mean, obviously we know some people that their truth is the truth all the time, full stop. Mm-hmm. But is there a gradient there where you can give enough of that truth so that it's a minimum effective dose mm-hmm. versus just give them the entire bottle of truth and just see if they can swallow all of it? Yeah, it just depends on how much they've pissed you off. That's, that's <laughs> okay. the true, I think that's Good the start. true answer. I mean, <laughs> uh, obviously, tact plays a role in survival. Yeah. Short of having like a mental affliction, most of us don't walk around just saying everything we think all <laughs> the time. Most, <laughs> most, most. So you do have to pick and choose your your battles, and in that, you're picking and choosing how much of your opinion you're really going to let fly. But uh, I have found myself in places where I, I get a little like, I'm, I'm about to say something. I know that it could have some negative impact. Mm-hmm. But it's worth it to me to throw that rock out into the pond mm-hmm. and see how much of a ripple really comes off of it versus putting myself in a situation where I know I'll be miserable. Right. You know, so only in those situations where someone's talking about like the process, like this is how we're going to do this, and, you know, and it's going to be great. We're all going to live in an apartment together, and you're just like, no, <laughs> there's not enough towels. <laughs> we, I, I don't drink whole milk. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, there's yeah. too many things. It's it's amazing how quickly you become bougie. <laughs> the older you get, like, no, no, I I, I really need a bidet. <laughs> you know, that's just part of my thing now. <laughs> it's funny because the the stuff we done traveling the last year i generally prefer not to share a room with sure, someone of course and my excuse is always i'm a grown-ass man yeah yeah and and that's my excuse it it, it has been a, a pleasure having to share a room with you because we're <laughs> we're we're of similar mind most yeah. of the time and uh, we have a lot to talk about and stuff like that but i get what you're saying because that that usually is my out when when oh we're gonna put four of you guys in a room together, I'm like mm. I'm a grown ass man, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's that's definitely when the I go further yeah. to let the truth out and go. Do you do you know what year I was born in? At the very least, put me in a room with one person mm. and let me pick the person. Yeah, uh, and I'll only be able to do that for a week. Okay, but yeah, yeah. Usually my default is I'm a grown ass man. You can get me. It ain't but another ninety six bucks for you to get me my own room. Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Yeah, that's a thing. That's a thing. You'll yeah. make us all a lot happier if you'll just do that one thing. <laughs> While we're talking about truth, and I feel like this is something that nobody is talking about that you and I could talk about together. Well, you and I and Greg in Wisconsin, we can all talk about mm-hmm. this because the last two years we have come through this collective mass trauma together where, like for me, if I'm just being transparent, I would say two and a half years ago, maybe three years ago, while things are always uncertain in a creative career, there's always a certain amount of risk and uncertainty you have to be able to stomach. I had a pretty good line on, well, if I keep going down this road, I know where this ends up, and that's where I'm trying to go. Mm -hmm. But because of the things that have happened with COVID, the pandemic, things shutting down. We're in a position now where I don't think any of us really know which end is up at this point. We'd like to think that we're getting to a point where we can go back and do the things we were doing before. But I don't think it's going to work that way. And it's not just uncertainty. It's that the world has changed. We just haven't really completely acknowledged how much it's changed. Can we talk for a second about that uncertainty? Like for you, is there is there something about the way that your career has moved and the way that your work has shifted that you're having to maybe recalibrate yourself? Yeah, I find myself digging into uh, old drawers of like essentially pennies. Are you going out? You're trying, well, I wasn't going you're there. To find pennies. It was more, more exactly. <laughs> Is there any money or change in here? Um, no, just like just the challenges of having to scurry up work. Yeah. You know, versus, I mean, at no time, well, I mean, almost at no time was I ever just like, hey, cake, it's all cake. It's because this business is not like that, you know? If, if it is, then good for you. But I don't, even people at the very top of it are usually still looking at the next thing. What is the next thing? And it's never really enough. You know, you just, you're always wanting to be, you want to be busy. If you're not busy and you know that if enough time passes, your relevance and becoming busy again is, becomes less and less. Right. So what I have found myself doing is like 
digging into old habits of this is what I do in these situations, which might've been all I did at some point, you know, which is just entertaining, uh, jobs that, that I might just say no to become, well, maybe, or definitely, you know, (laughs) does it pay? I want to do it. I am fortunate that I have been uh, the recipient of such good grace, and uh, with the the tribute band thing that we did some together last year, I, I don't think in any other point in time in either of our histories that either of us would have been doing something like that. And I certainly wouldn't have been able to make a call right. and go, "Hey, you know, I'm, I started doing this thing, and we need a guitar player, and I think you'd be the guy for it." So for me, I'm incredibly grateful that there was that point, that things had gotten to that point in the world where that was even a consideration. <laughs> Thank God the world blew up. Or would <laughs> so never we could become play the band. Yeah, all right. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I mean that with all the sincere yeah. love oh, and it, respect. And that's, a, that's an upshot of it. For me, that started with um, well, I don't. I'm trying to think of when I, I did this yacht rock gig. Where there's a, there's a thing here in Atlanta called yacht rock. Mm-hmm. That's you know it's probably gotten to be known all over the place at this point. But those guys had a group, a secondary group that they call Schooner, mm-hmm. and they called. I'm not even sure how it happened, but I got an ass to fill in. But the thing about that gig is like if you say yes to it, you're learning. Now it's these sixty or seventy songs. Most of which you know if you're a certain age, but still most of which you probably haven't played. And I mean, I don't take anything super lightly. I really want to prepare for yeah. the things that I jump in. I appreciate on. that about you. Yeah. Not everybody is that way. Yeah. It's I, I know not everybody's that way, but I, I don't get it. I, I I would be just uncomfortable the entire time. I do I do know people that don't do it. I don't know how they deal with it. I don't know how they keep getting jobs. Um, they don't get hired by me. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I'd been asked to do one of those things and it was like, like that. So I did it and it was an absolute blast. And it, a lot of that just has to do with a little bit of being like, we're talking about being the shiny new thing. If, mm-hmm. if, if there's a group of guys that have been playing together as a unit for a really long time and one of them has to do something for a second, normally they don't sub out and somebody comes in. And I imagine if the, if the somebody that comes in, if it's a terrible fit, then it wouldn't be this way. But if it's even remotely a good fit and they've done their work, the entire band will lift you up. You know, you become the focus like, okay, I'm here. What do you guys want to do? Well, what do you want to do? You're yeah. the... You're the only you're the one. Yeah, you're the new guy. Your opinion is the only one that matters right now. <laughs> oh, okay, well, I want to play Rosanna. You know, I've never gotten to actually play Rosanna live. You know, I want to play that kind of stuff. Right. You know, that's like the stuff that guitar players meatily, meatily about in their homes. But, you know, and maybe a little bit at sound check, like, ah, I learned the solo for Rosanna or whatever. But when do you ever really get to do it in front of an audience? You know what I mean? Not often. So um, that is what opened that door. I've always said saying yes is such a valuable tool. To It, it becomes a tool, you know, because we say yes to things. I think we probably all at some point or another feel this way. We say yes to things that might be six weeks down the road. And as that gets closer and closer, more and more regret seeps into your soul Oh yeah, of like, oh man, why did I say yes to this? Well, the reason you said yes to it is because you're in a business where if you say no, you're not going to be able to pay your mortgage. Maybe not at all and definitely not easily. So you can't always pick and choose. And, and, and I'll say I'm fortunate at this point. The things I'm saying yes to 
are usually pretty good things. Right. But still, there's like this element of work that seeps in of like, for me to be successful at this gig, I have to do X, Y, and Z. Even though I've had moments where I'll push it, where I'm like, I'm going to do X and Y. (laughs) Well, Z will take care of itself, probably. And I've gotten lucky where Z did. Like, something kicks in, you're like, I'm good. You know, but I I think it's a terrible habit to get into. (laughs) So usually I have to do all X, Y's and Z's. And uh, a lot of the times anyway, the gig isn't really worth, you know, the time you're going to put in to make it a great gig. But what will be worth it is having the experience, probably working with someone that you've not worked with before who will be like, you know what? This person is valid. They're good. They do their work. They're great. I like them. All those kinds of things, which will lead to dozens of other things. Everything you do leads to something else. Yes. So, you know, during this troubling time, all I really feel like I've done is kind of self-correct for it and just sort of fallen back into some of my older methodologies and paths of how I make money and how I make a living. And that includes like entertaining the idea of first time singer songwriters that are really talented, but don't necessarily have a lot of experience making records and almost certainly don't have experience making records with professionals. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a learning gap that you're either going to be willing to pilot somebody through or, um, or maybe have a miserable experience, you know, as a pro watching someone struggle with, you know, things that you learned 30 years ago. Right. So there's a lot, of, lot more of that during these times. I wonder though, man, I wonder how much of it really, like it becomes such a, like I'm not, I, I think it's super valid, you know, the whole idea that COVID has changed everything. But I also just wonder at any given time, there's probably been something in this business where something has dramatically changed and we just deal with it. You just get through it, whether it's like going from analog to digital and all those kinds of things or how, how the music industry makes money with streaming, you know, becoming more of a thing whenever that started becoming more of a thing. And when, you know, when it just didn't matter, when you couldn't sell records anymore, we'll figure it out. As musicians, it, it's something that you just have to do. I mean, it's probably a cliche, but it's true. Being a musician at the end of the day is just something that you have to do if you are a musician. Right. It is what you want to do. It's what you're driven to do. But to really, really make it work it is exclusively what you do, you know, at the end of the day, that, that is your identity. That's what I write down on my taxes. Yeah. I'm a musician. Yeah. You know, I'm 40 things, <laughs> but I'm actually a musician. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Your bread and butter, the, 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 the real linchpin for all the other things that happen are that one thing. Yep. I, I joke all the time that I've tried to get out of this business at least a dozen times in the last dozen years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it was, it, they just keep pulling me back in. It's, it's, it it's that, that thing. It, it really does feel like it chose you at the time. Everything is the meteorite that killed the dinosaurs mm. right now. It's been COVID in the pandemic before that it was, streaming services and downloading music before that it was nirvana and the end of like there's always it at the time it always does it seems like this is the catastrophic event that's going to change everything when in in reality if you're looking from a much uh, longer vantage point it's just 
um, a change, a morphing. And the degree to which you have to morph and change is more akin to a frog in a pot of water. Like the temperature is just different. Yeah. It might be up, it might be down a little bit, but we adjust to it. Yep. So that eventually... And eventually we get boiled alive. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think exactly. That, that might be how that frog thing is. I think, I think, I think it's. <laughs> um, how long can you stay in the pot? Well, that's a thing too. Uh, there, there are a few people I've seen over the over the last, even the last four months that have gotten out of the pot. I mean, mm-hmm. just completely got incredibly talented people. Mm-hmm. And in 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 times past, I probably would have had a little bit of a cynical attitude about that. It's inherent in all of us. It is. Right. It's built into us that you, because of your sufferings to get through things in this business, when somebody gets out alive, especially, it's just it's a little bit of just like, well, let's just wait and see what this failure is going to be. You right. know what I mean? Like same with like the change catalyst. It's it's like uh, people love to have these kind of mitigations to hang their lack of success on. Well, I would have been this, but Nirvana. I mean, how many times have we heard that about so many acts and even like acts that were successful that blame their lack of success? I mean, could it just be that after 10 years of Motley Crue, nobody wants to hear Motley Crue anymore? I don't know. There's an idea. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, you know, I still like Motley Crue. That's fine. But, uh, you know, I just was watching the Pam and... Uh, oh, yeah. I just finished it last night. Yeah, yeah. Over dinner, yeah. And, that, and it comes up in that. Of yeah. course, it's just a TV show. But I imagine there's some truth in there that there was that those moments for so many bands that, that just didn't have the success. And when they talk, you know, that becomes the thing. Well, Nirvana happened and it changed all this. I'm like, okay. There was a time recently where, you know, guitar kind of fell out of favor. Mm-hmm. And you would hear that too. Well, guitars just not popular right now. Like, meanwhile, they're selling more guitars than they've ever sold. You know, there's all these things if you look deep enough that counterbalance all these arguments. I just think it's life, and things change, and moods change, and tastes change, and you have to be fluid enough and flexible enough to deal with those things. And and being conscious of it is important, and not necessarily blaming you know COVID on this or that. Right. It is real. I mean, obviously, there was no place for people to play. And when you called me about the Elton thing, that was that was an anomaly in my and from my world. It was like, how are you guys even gigging? Because from my perspective, everyone's telling me that we're not allowed to gig anywhere. And it might just be that hey, you know, it's just easier right now to say we can't because we can't sell the tickets that the way we want to sell them or at the right. price we want to sell them or whatever. I don't know. I don't know if any of that's really true, but it does feel like it when other acts are working and, yeah. you know, and, and you, you're working with people like, we can't, you know, there's no yeah. venues. Like, well, there are some venues. Yeah. They're bowling alleys. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you don't want to play a bowling alley. Just because you'd rather not play next to, uh, next to the first lane. <laughs> I mean... And as it turns out, that was a really fun gig. I mean, it I was. definitely was just like, this couldn't be more hilarious. Yeah, uh, of you course. That's that one thing I will say uh, that I took away from that whole experience, especially once once that band became more, leaning more towards people that were my, uh, my peer group. Yeah, yeah. It became more about, well, what is this experience going to be like? Yeah. Initially, when, like, when you walk through that door and you say, oh, this is a freaking bowling alley. 
Uh, <laughs> at first, the shock is this is going to suck. That's that's the initial reaction. But then, you know, two hours later, you're like, Axel, this is pretty hysterical. I can't I, wait to tell the story. I loved it. Yeah, that. Oh, well, that's a big thing right there. You know, the real the real reason any of us do this stuff is for the stories. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, like that, that is your real bread and butter. Your real calling card is, can you sit in a room with other musicians and hold your own with war stories? Yeah. And no better way to get war stories than start by playing a bowling alley <laughs> with, with a bunch of, with a bunch of drunks who have decided COVID is not real. No. And there's no, nobody's wearing a mask. Nobody's doing anything that's even like at that time, I remember that, you know, it was still like, Six feet, everybody. I was like, yeah. well, that's out the window. <laughs> you know, Barb is puking two it's, feet in front yeah. of me. Like, You're six feet away from the idea of putting a mask on. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was shocked and, and just amazed that that, that, that was, that that happened yeah. the way that it did. But it also, um, it reminded me of the most fun part of, of any journey is the like the doing it's not really the the end or the destination or the achievement of the goal or any of that the thing that you'll always remember is just this the journey going through there and i have played bowling alleys in the past mm -hmm. i've done it with acts that the whole world knows about now yeah and when we played those bowling alleys we were just playing a bowling alley yeah. and just trying to do a gig so to me it was like this is this is fantastic. Yeah. And I love a little bit of a, you know, I don't want struggle all the time. That's not fun, but you know, a little bit of a struggle every now and then and a little bit of like, can't, can we succeed through the odds that we're being faced with right now? And that kind of group effort thing is so much fun. That's one of the best parts yeah. of what we do, whether it's in a studio and you're just trying to get something that's difficult or working with someone, you know, that we're just trying to get the best out of something, but there's things working against you or a situation like that where you're just in a terrible place, right. you know, but can you, can you win an audience? Can you make them pay attention to you? And can you feel good about what you did? You know, I don't know that you would get that being, you know, whatever, a stockbroker. Right. You know. Well, it, it gets to the heart of no matter what kind of musical um, situation that you're in, studio or live, one of the real differences in something that's a truly creative endeavor is that at some point there there is going to be conflict of some sort. Mm -hmm. If all you're doing is regurgitating some cover tunes for a bunch of people that don't really care, and it's almost like almost like a factory job where you sort of clock in and you clock out, and it is what it is, and it's insulated to that moment in time, and as soon as you leave it, it's it was neither here nor there. When you're talking about something that's truly a creative endeavor, even playing cover music in a tribute band situation, yeah. if it's a truly creative endeavor, there is going to be some kind of conflict. And the real measure of the success of the creative endeavor becomes how well can we uh, lock arms and be galvanized by this conflict? Mm -hmm. In the studio, it may be the arrangement of a song. Right. The artist has a particular way they want this song arranged. I want to start with the bridge, and I want to do the bridge three times. Well, at that point, it's a chorus. It's not a bridge anymore. Yeah. Like that, there, there is your conflict. The artist has a vision that, uh, in your mind, is untenable. Mm -hmm. Like that is just not how we do things. Mm -hmm. And so everyone has to, in some way, lock arms and find a way into that conflict 
not around it, but yeah. into it, and then through it together so that we all are together on the other side yeah. with the bowling alley. How do we walk in <laughs> and how do we look at this and look at each other, smile, even if it's manufactured at first, lock our arms together, and by the end of the day, we're going to walk out of here together. And we're going to have something that we can say made this a successful creative endeavor. Yeah. Endeavor. Yeah. What did we do tonight to make something that didn't exist before we did the thing? Yeah. And then we can walk out of there with our heads up going, oh, man, we could, we could tackle the world. Mm -hmm. We can do anything together at this point. Yeah. That, to me, is the difference between something that's a creative thing versus something that's just it doesn't have any creative engine in it at all. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really serve a purpose, and ultimately it gets discarded like anything else gets discarded that is now waste. It's so. interesting. It's interesting. There, there are acts right now in Nashville that work around a concept that isn't necessarily creative, where they'll have an outside musical influence that is dictating what the band, like these kind of satellite MDs. Mm -hmm. This is a, like... Of a real thing that, um, without mentioning any names, there are people, there are acts that, that are successful that will have an outside MD that doesn't play in the band that comes in and kind of gives everyone an assignment. Here's what your part is. Here's what your part is. Let's run it. Let's figure out what works best. Once we obtain the standard for which we will do all these shows, then my job is done. I'm out. Hmm. I've seen it a few times and, and it does, it's, it's hard to argue with success. You know, there are things in the, in, within this realm that are really pretty, pretty successful, but, um, talking to the musicians that are part of this, who usually at first find it odd, you mm -hmm. know, it's like, well, that's a weird kind of weird thing, but you know, uh, we're, we're talking about artists that slip into the pop world. So it isn't just like, you know, we're not talking about Tammy Wynette, right? You know, these, right, these right, are right. things that are like, you know, commercially, successful on multiple in multiple genres and have big corporate sponsors and right. they're a corporate entity in and of itself. Sure. Funny enough, usually at the heart of it, like none of the artists that I know that do this are none of them suck. Mm. They're killer. Yeah. You know, really talented people with great abilities. And so it's not uh it's not to say that they're wrong in choosing to do this. It just is a methodology of like, this is a way to achieve a certain standard for every show. Mm -hmm. And rather than having someone in the band that travels with the thing that dictates these sort of things, just having an outside person that comes in and out, almost like a director for a Broadway play that after previews is gone. That's it. My job is done. Things will morph a little bit from here or there, but essentially here is the standard of which we, we will do this. But the experience, a lot of times, I, as I understand, I've never been in this situation myself, but the experience that they walk away with isn't that let's all lock arms. Right. And I don't know how much of the outside influence has anything to do with it, but I do think that if you're willing to take that step of like, this is how I'm going to run my band. Someone's going to come in that is kind of almost like a corporate entity that understands music and is going to sort of assign parts. And as an artist, I'm not even going to have anything to do with this. Mm -hmm. I set all this out. And then I come in and we essentially play to the record. Right. You know, we're, we're playing live, but it could also be tracks. Mm -hmm. It's exactly like what the record is. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the experience that, that those musicians often walk away with, if they know better, you know, in, in most of these cases, they're so young that they might not know. This may be their first big gig. But the ones that know better walk away usually going, wow, it's just such a weird thing, you know? Yeah. And, and, and that could be in, the, in a situation where they're now 
in an, in a quote unquote normal deal where you're just making music with people and locking arms yeah. and rediscovering the joy of that. Because yeah. for the last year, all I've been doing is, you know, kind of playing through the numbers right? and doing my thing. And you find your own joy in all that. It's not, sure. to, it's all valid. It's like, it's a, it's a job. Right. Right. You know? And uh, I was talking to you about that the other day. I'm just like, you mentioned an artist that my experiences with that artist would be, uh, I would say to a friend, word of caution, yeah. a little bit of a tumultuous situation in this camp from my own experience, you know, and that may or may not be true now and take it for what it's worth, grain of salt. Right. Just me saying my experiences were this. And I wouldn't necessarily, while I understand the appeal of wanting to play with someone that's awesome and, you know, and delivers every night, if if that comes at the price of that person's also a terrible alcoholic or whatever, right. um, you, you might want to be uh, cautious of that situation. So... Uh, I kind of lost my train of thought. Sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, it goes, oh, the, it the goes diff- right into this, this the, whole thing we're talking about. The difference of, uh, of that versus um, being in a steady paycheck situation right. with a high-profile artist. You know, you're now – it's not Taylor Swift that I'm talking about, but you're in Taylor Swift's band. Right. Well, if you're – if you're 40 something, Taylor Swift is probably not the artist that, you know, you grew up, man, if I could only be in Taylor's band, right? you know what I mean? But it's a, probably a great way to make a living yeah. and, and, uh, whatever, you know, and yeah. she may, and she's obviously wildly talented sure. and brings a lot to the picture and all that stuff. And there will be no, you're not in danger of someone being an outrageous drunk and making your life miserable in that situation because it would never happen. Right, that person right. would be gone. Of course. Immediately. It's it's way more corporate than than, than would allow for such a thing yeah. to happen. Yeah, yeah. Everything's corporate and modular at yeah. that point. So you're giving up, you know, by not having the outrageous drunk in your situation. <laughs> <laughs> they all have to be outrageous drunks. Man, it was fantastic. <laughs> um but you do, you great do, singer, yeah. horrible drunk. Right, right. <laughs> Doesn't even, yeah. You give up. You are, you know. There's a give and a take to all that stuff, you know. And I love the. Uh, I don't know that I want to do it every night, but I do love having some adversity to push through. Right. You know, in a gig situation, you know, I don't want it to be personal. I don't no, want no, it to no. be like, you know, interpersonal conflict or anything like that. that's miserable. Right, right. Being on stage with people that you're angry with is no fun. No, no. But having like it's bad monitor mix or yeah. something that you've got to, you know, you having, I remember when we were in Birmingham that one night, you having power issues. Oh, yeah. Like to have Terrible. to push through Terrible. that thing. And in that moment, man, it's so, like I'm thinking like my head immediately just goes to, well, you know, I've got a team of people. <laughs> that are going to now help me get through this and having that moment of that realization of like, I am completely alone yeah. and I might just sit here for the rest of the show with no power. And that's how it's going to be, you know, like I am absolutely hosed right now and I'm alone. So yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want that every right. night. That's terrible. That's that definitely like took me right out of the gig. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, literally I'm out of the gig. I can't play. But um, yeah, I think we got it fixed, or I got it fixed. Yeah, you ended up getting it fixed. Yeah, I think I just jumped behind my rig and started wrenching. I was like, "What? <laughs> this is a, this is a unique experience. I get to like you know uh, solder some wires in front of the audience." <laughs> <laughs> I 
can't think honestly. Now, now you probably have a different you have a different take on this. I'm sure because you know your experiences are are definitely, especially some of the those pinnacle ones are a lot probably a lot more well equipped than some of mine have been. But I have yet to really have an ideal gig. Mm. Twenty twenty seven years of doing this. Gosh, almost thirty years of doing this. I have yet. I can't point to one gig and say that. Everything was perfect, including me. Well, I can tell you from my perspective, I've had them. And when I had them, well, here's what happens. A monitor. There's a couple of monitor people, ear guys and girls in the world that, you know, that are like the the monitor guy that worked for Michael Jackson, let's say, Mm. or the monitor guy that works for Don Henley. Like each of the Eagles have their own ear guy. That's different. Wow, that's talk next, about corporate. That's next wow. level shit right there. You have monitor managers. Dude. So <laughs> each one has their guy. And I knew uh, there's one guy who actually is from Atlanta. His name is Mike Pierce. He uh, was on the Michael Jackson gig. He was on Don Henley. And he ended up working for Billy Joel for like the last 10 or 15 years. So he is he is the monitor guy to the stars who gets those gigs. Obviously, I've, I've not experienced his exact mix. He's an old friend of mine. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he's great at it, and the, well, obviously he gets these gigs for a reason. But I have had a guy like that. He wasn't my guy. He was our guy. Right. I've never been in a situation where someone had their guy. Mm. but uh, And so I've always looked at those situations like, that's overkill in so many ways. But whatever, if that's... If it boils down to like the the kind of arguments that come from you know uh, a whole group of people trying to put directives towards one person, it, it there is a certain amount of tension in that moment, and <clears throat> you tend to let things go. You tend to just say, "What is the least I can get through this yeah. with?" You know, because I don't want to add to any of this. And also, you maybe it's the singer or whoever. There's there's usually one person that's like. You get what you need, mm-hmm. and then we'll fall in behind that, yeah. you know? When you get to the point to where you're no longer thinking about anything technical, you know, it's a little bit of a scary thing because you do have that, the advantage of having technical difficulties is that if you get through it successfully and the audience doesn't necessarily know that anything was wrong and they've just seen what they think is the greatest show in their life, then that becomes an instant win, regardless of how good or bad the show really was. Right. Yeah, you've come over this thing and you've success. I've had absolute moments where I thought, it is all up to me. There's nothing, everyone is taking care of everything. My mix sounds like a record. I feel mm-hmm. like I'm listening to a perfectly mixed record. My guitar is perfectly in tune, and these amps are incredible. And my pedal board has everything on it that I've ever wanted. Now it's just up to me. <laughs> you know, don't screw it up, Pat. It's a little bit of an unfortunate situation, to be honest. Like you, I've had that thought of like, if something goes wrong, it is squarely my fault at this point. That's an interesting hurdle to get over. It comes with a new set of problems. Then the perfect gig simply becomes about, like, were you successful enough? And are you doing it in a place? Are you at Red Rocks and you look out and you see beautiful Red Rocks or the Greek or any of these places that you dream about playing? Once you start hitting that, if you get onto something that hits all those, then at the end of that year, you're just like, well, those gigs were, uh, I don't know if they were actually perfect, but they feel perfect. Yeah. For for those reasons, you're on a stage with people that you genuinely love, yeah. doing the thing that we're talking about, locking arms, and we're going to go out, we're going to treat it, no matter what the gig is, you treat it the same way, whether it's a bowling alley or Madison Square Garden. 
But nonetheless, you're doing that thing and you're looking out and your ears are good and the crew is on point and, and you've worked to get all that and it's not easy, but that's, that's as close as I've ever come to it. You know, if I had to hear those tapes, I'd probably be like, that gig sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll just let it, let it marinate in your brain as Some being the you perfect gig. Man, you know, that technology is so available, even on, you know, uh, every gig I do, it seems like they have some sort of DAW. Yeah. Everyone's recording multi-track. You know, we used to do it all the time. I used to say it was a point of pride. We'd get on the bus. It'd be me and McNabb. Yeah. And we'd drive everyone crazy. Everyone would just leave the front lounge while we just <laughs> sat there and watched and, you know, taking mental notes, driving. I mean, nobody else wanted to do it. Everyone else was just like, please, God, don't look at it tonight. Like, <laughs> sorry, we're going to look at it. We're going to watch the DVD and we're going to hear what would, you know, normally be a good, high-quality studio recording right. for a live gig. And try to learn and try to learn, try to learn. But yeah, yeah, you you take you always take a risk with that. You know, it's just like we were saying earlier. If you think it's a great show, you might find out not so much, and vice versa. And the mistakes that you made, it's always, you know, like that's the thing. There's be some giant clam or mistake that you make. Everybody does it in every show. There's always something. And in your mind, it's just the oh man, show ruined. For what that thing I did, and then you'll listen to like I don't even hear it. Yeah, like, yeah. Why am I not in the mix? <laughs> <laughs> I no idea. M- meanwhile, front house is like he fucks this up every time. <laughs> I can give him a little help. Yeah. So. Well, man, I appreciate you taking so much time to talk to me. This has been fun. Yeah, this I enjoyed been fun. it. Man. I feel like we'd do it for hours. We could. Yeah, and 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 have I have yeah <laughs> and have yeah. So. Uh, if people want to find out, you're not nearly as out there as, as I am with social post stuff, but if people want to find out what you're doing or what you're about or or want to hear you play or whatever, want to contact you, do a record, how do they do that stuff? Uh, you know, um, I don't I don't have a great answer. I'm the worst. <laughs> the Instagram is... Yellow pages. Uh, yeah. Yep, just start shouting my name. I do have an Instagram account. I'm not, I don't keep up with it. I, I don't find a lot of joy in social media and I haven't found like a healthy way to use it, yeah. you know, but I do uh, keep an Instagram account. I think it's Scott Pat music or S Pat music. And if someone really wants to contact me, it's Scott Pat music at gmail.com. And I'll, you know, I, I've, I have found that on occasion, especially with fellow professionals that reaching out and having some contact in that way is, is helpful. So I'm glad I'm always happy to talk to somebody if they, you know, have, if they feel like I can answer some question for them or help them with something. I get people all the time that are, you know, I work with this guy and he's great at these X, Y, and Z, and I might know someone that's higher in X, Y, and Z. And I'm always happy to do that sort of thing. But yeah, I'm not a big social media hound. I'm just not. Which is fine. It makes, it makes you unique among the, the throngs of people. That are out there just posting every little thing. Yeah, I don't. I don't blame anybody for doing it, but I just don't think I'm that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been an interesting time. I appreciate you taking the time to do it, man. It glad means a lot it. to me. I'm glad to do it. Cool. Yeah, man. Let's go have lunch. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right, there you have it. Can you tell why I was so excited about this episode? Hands down, the most value-packed episode I've ever done. Of I've been doing podcasts since 2005, 
And I got to tell you, of all the interviews I've done for podcasts or magazine articles I've written or any number of different reasons why I've had to interview professional musicians and engineers and music one of the most value-packed, amazing uh, times that I've had ever, ever. And that's, that's no hyperbole. I'm that excited. It helps that he's my friend. It helps that I've had an opportunity to really see this guy work, both in the studio and live. I've seen the magic that is Scott Patton. I'm so glad that I got an opportunity today to bring it directly to your ears. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to us in Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, you can subscribe to the Fader Jocks Podcast. And please support the sponsors. Go to the Cosmic Clubhouse and jump on a membership tier at brianstevens.net. Go check out some in-ear monitors at sessionace.com. And if you if you don't have some Waves plugins, you need to jump over faderjocks.com slash waves and pick up that SSL EV2 channel strip plugin and the Sheps Omni Channel plugin are the two plugins you have got to have right this moment if you're recording Pro Tools, Logic Studio One, any of them. You gotta have those two channel strips. It's the only channel strips you'll ever need for EQ compression and all the other things that you need to do when you're mixing your music. So that's how you can support the show. Uh, please share this with your friends. If you have any questions, uh, you can go to the site under this episode and leave a question in the comments. We'll get them back to Scott. We'll get you some answers on a future episode. And uh, and that's all I've got for you. Man, this is like almost three hours, I think. Once we edit everything in, it's probably close to three hours worth of amazing content. I really appreciate you sticking with me. And I'll see you next time with another amazing guest that we're teeing up right now. So uh, I guess until next time, I'll see you when I see you later.